When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. A very good morning across South Texas and San Antonio and the Hill Country and the Coastal Bend and all those places that our KTSA signal reaches out to. And all those you listening on the Internet or on one of the streaming services. Uh, anyway, appreciate you joining me. It's uh, dark and early on Saturday morning. Chilly in San Antonio, uh, middle 30s. It was below freezing up in the hill country once again. But uh, it is still February, and it's getting to be, well, it's rodeo time. And you know what that usually means for us as far as weather not being really conducive for outdoor activities not quite that bad it was sure windy yesterday but we're going to have some pretty nice days over the next few days so lots of gardening things to do uh don tells me that we pretty much have an open board right now so if you would like to get a call in early if you've got a question that takes a little bit more time you'd like to delve into a little bit more it'd be a great time to call if you simply want to call so you can get out and get back to doing something fun uh you know the number 210-599-5555 and uh lots of lots of things to talk about there are lots of good plants starting to show up now uh, after all, we're getting pretty close to Valentine's Day, and I uh, hope, you're, hope you're planning to make somebody feel special on Valentine's Day. It's just that, that day of the year that, uh, you know, whether it's uh, husband, wife, grandmother, mother, <laughs> daughter, uh, there are just people out there that want to know that somebody's thinking happy thoughts about them, and uh, that's what Valentine's Day is all about to me. So hope you feel the same way, and I certainly wish everybody out there all you ladies in the world out there uh, i hope it is just a very very happy and special day for you coming up this tuesday i realize we've got to get beyond the super bowl before you guys will start thinking about that kind of thing but and you ladies do but anyway lots of things to talk about and uh would love to hear from you if you'd you have something gardening or nature related on your mind you would enjoy talking about or if you have questions about getting beyond all the damage. I was just talking with the engineer this morning when we were talking about damage uh, up around the Canyon Lake area. Uh, severe damage up in Austin, of course. And uh, other than that, it's kind of scattered across the hill country. Some areas got hit really hard. You know somebody down in the Smithson Valley area that just yard was just devastated and uh, feeling very fortunate. My uh, business partner and I both, uh, she lives... Uh, Old Bergheim area, and of course I live west on 46. We both had plenty of damage, but it was small limbs rather than major, major limbs. Now I'll be honest, neither one of us have had a chance to get back and walk the back acreage of our property, so there may be more damage out there than we realize, but at least around our respective homes, uh, the damage was relatively minor, and I certainly hope that uh, you guys can say the same. But there are some important things to know about that. Uh, we're still, you know, big breaks, splintering breaks. Uh, we are concerned about oak wilt problems and the potential for oak wilt transfer. So if you'd like to talk about that, one of many, many subjects that we can talk about uh, this morning. And um, 
Oh, gosh. I, I guess I will say just a couple of things about uh, the potential for oak wilt. And, you know, the chances, unless you have a lot of oak wilt in your neighborhood, the chances of getting oak wilt started with storm wounds and things like that, pretty low. But it is still out there, and if you've ever seen the damage that oak wilt can cause once it gets started, you know, it's sort of, for me, it's sort of a zero-tolerance policy. You've got to do everything you possibly can to prevent oak wilt. And uh, I, I have found that a lot of people are not really aware of how oak wilt spreads. So I'm going to take just a second and tell you a little bit about that first thing this morning. And there, there are two groups of trees that get oak wilt that are severely affected by oak wilt. I guess there are a lot of trees that could get oak wilt, and you would never know it. But the two trees that potentially will die from oak wilt are the so-called red oaks or Spanish oak, or they go by a number of different names, but the deciduous uh, oaks uh, like those trees in the hill country and live oaks. Now, you don't have to worry about Monterey oaks or Lacey's oaks or Chincapin oaks or Burr oaks. Uh, those are in a different section of the oak family, what we call white oaks, and are not really much affected by oak wilt. But uh, red oaks and live oaks, yes, it's a devastating disease and uh, will certainly kill a tree. Red oaks, it kills in about two weeks from the time symptom starts. Live oaks can take a year or even longer, but uh, it is simply not something you want to deal with. The two ways that the disease spreads, especially in live oaks now, is through root grafting. When you have two live oaks growing in the vicinity of each other, and that means probably within a 100 feet of each other, their roots have almost certainly grafted. Where one root touches another, they actually fuse together. And oak wilt spreads when one tree gets the oak wilt fungus, Ceratocystis uh, fagaraceum, something like that. It spreads down through the root system of the tree from one tree to the next tree to the next tree. And... Um, that uh you know that that's how it moves and it moves really pretty slowly but it doesn't stop it just keeps going and going and going and all these chemicals that the forest service pushes to inject your trees with they don't stop the spread of oak wilt they suppress the symptoms within a tree that has oak wilt but they have no effect at all as far as trans is keeping that uh disease from being transmitted from one tree to another through the root system so you don't want to get it started to begin with. Second way that oak wilt spreads, and by the way, Dolores, I see you there, and we'll, we'll get to you call in just a second. But uh, the second way that oak wilt spreads, and it's what we worried about, worry about in storms like this, is when a red oak dies of oak wilt. This doesn't happen in live oaks. Live oaks just kind of fold up and die slowly over time. But when a red oak gets oak wilt, it forms underneath the bark. It forms what's called a spore mat. And spores are how fungi reproduce. And that spore mat can have up to several million spores in it. And it also can have a sticky, it does have a sticky, sugary-like substance along with it. That is attractive to the so-called sap beetles, the nitty-do-the beetles, the ambrosia beetles. They go in to feed on the sticky stuff, and they get coated with the oak wilt spores. Then what happens? Well, you get you get a wound on a tree, whether it's made by a chainsaw or whether it's made... You know, by ice breaking a big limb off, when that sap forms, those then you do the beetles head for that sap. And if you happen to have a beetle that's been feeding on a spore mat, it's quite likely to transfer the spores, which will cause oak wilt, into the tree that it is feeding on, whether it is a red oak or a live oak. So that's how it gets spread. Uh, if you use red oak firewood that is not thoroughly dried, 
you can actually spread it around that way. And that's why we have oak wilt down in Rockport, while we have oak wilt up in Lubbock. Got spread through firewood. But uh, um, anyway, that's... Uh, that is the way oak will get spread, and that's why you want to be sure that you coat every wound where you've had damage or where you've cut with a chainsaw, no matter how large or how small. Coat it with some kind of paint. doesn't have to be printing paint. can be almost any kind of paint. And um, uh, the wounds are only affectable for a couple of weeks, so uh, you need to do it quickly. Now, you say, well, it's been a week since the ice storm. If I had jagged wounds and I had not gotten around to painting, I'd probably go in Cut those off flush, uh, make it a little bit nicer, smoother wound, and then I would very definitely paint. Well, having told you that, we can talk about it a little bit more later in the show if you would like. Right now, we've got Dolores and James waiting, so Dolores is up first. Good morning. Good morning. Looks like Good. you and me and James only ones up this morning. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I'm. I will admit to being a morning person. I wouldn't normally normally be getting up at this hour. Well, at three fifteen in the morning when my alarm goes off. But you know, it's what it takes to get my cows fed, my puppy dogs fed, and everything checked, and get in here to do a show for you. So I'm happy to do it. What's going on in your world? Oh, just the same old, same old. I'm a fair weather gardener, so <laughs> I just to <laughs> Well, your season's you know, coming. Uh, yeah, thank God. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, I just wanted to let you know I got the freeze misers. Yes. Thank goodness. I hope I got them on before we have another freeze, because we don't need any busted pipes. Oh, man, we sure don't. I, uh, You know, my freeze misers worked real well, but there's a one big pipe on a water storage tank that I didn't have any way to put one on, and uh, so that valve split and broke. So what am I doing? I'm putting a new valve on along with a little hose bib so I can put a freeze miser up there in the future. But, uh, yeah, they really do They really do work. They've saved an immense amount of damage and uh, uh, <laughs> immense amount of worry, too. So glad they did the same for you. Yeah, Any well, so far I haven't. I just got them in, so yeah. I'm just anticipating another freeze. <laughs> well, <laughs> just uh, let them stay there until we're past the danger of that freeze, and then just uh, take them off, dry them off, and uh, put them away for next year because uh, they they should last well year after year. And uh, like I say, they just take a lot of the worry out of uh, you know we all. Well, a lot of us grew up when we spent a lot of time dripping our hydrants to keep them from freezing, and having a little device that does it automatically is sure nice. Absolutely, and people, they are kind of expensive, but if people realize <laughs> if you've got busted and you've got water leaking for days on end, if you have a freeze, you're going to spend that money anyway. Well, and if you if you have to call a plumber, you're going to spend enough money to have bought a dozen freeze misers just for just for a house call, let alone the parts that it takes to fix it. So, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm gl glad you made the right decision there. Okay, dokie. Thank you. Have a great day. You do the same, Dolores. Thanks for calling this morning, and thank, uh, thank you, James. It's your turn. Good morning. Morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. You got that iron stove going this morning? Let me see here. Let, let me look over here. Oh, yeah, it's all cranked up and glowing. <laughs> yes, sir. What what What's on your agenda for today? Um, 
uh, cutting celery. Okay. Uh, I just got a load of seed in from Johnny's. Yeah. Uh, I tried a couple of trays uh, a while back, but they didn't germinate, so I, I blamed the seed. I got some new seed and loading some 128 trays. Uh-huh. I put the media down and pack it down pretty good because I bottom watered. And then I put that seed on the media, and then I put a little vermiculite on top. Is is that going to be too much for those uh, little plants to come through? No, not if you put a thin layer of vermiculite. The uh, the problem to me with vermiculite, aside from the fact that it can sometimes have a little asbestos in it, but uh, it holds a lot of water. And uh, if you've got something that really needs to stay moist, as long as you do a thin layer, vermiculite is fine. I don't I don't use it as much for cuttings and things because most things like it a little bit drier, and I think perlite does a better job than vermiculite does for rooting a lot of things but where you've got a seed that you really want to keep a little bit more moist you know I that thin layer of vermiculite on top there's nothing wrong with that it's uh that that water will wick up through your trays and get up in there and that'll hold the moisture close to the seed and that that should help your germination oh that's good news uh that's a lot of work loading those trays um, yes sir we're thinking about doing garlic next this what this this year uh, in uh-huh. September, and Johnny's has got a three pound load of some real good stuff for about eighty ninety bucks. Yeah, but it's kind of hard to figure how many little I guess they call it how many little cloves you're going to yeah. get in that load. For each pod, that's exactly right. And also realize that there are probably a hundred or more kinds of garlic out there, and there there are hard neck garlics and there are soft neck garlics as well. I think in our area, the soft neck garlic does, in my experience, does a little bit better, grows a little bit better. That's what you talked me into, Bob. Good. Good. Uh, and she said you guys can braid it, and I said I don't know if that's going to happen. But uh. <laughs> well, and the other thing that sometimes people forget to tell about when they're encouraging somebody to try the garlic is uh, when you pull it, usually in early summer, don't wash it. You don't want to get those pods wet. Take yourself a little brush, um, you know, moderately stiff, but certainly not a wire brush, and use that to get the dirt off of it. You'll clean it up when you go to you know, eat it or do whatever you're going to be, you know, making whatever poultice with it or spray or whatever you're going to use the garlic for. But uh, before you store it, brush it dry. Don't wet it down and then expect it to dry out. You'll you'll almost invariably get some rot started in it if you if you wash it. So it's kind of like onions. You know, you really don't need to wash them. And that little brush does gets off all the dirt you need to get off. Well... The the book says uh, cure, curing and storage. You can cure on some window screens and you know in the shed, but storage requires forty five to fifty. And I was talking to her, and I said, "Well, we can put it in the refrigerator." She said, "No, buddy, that's way too humid. You need a root cellar." Yeah. I'm going, man. I don't know about that. We don't have <laughs> a lot of root cellars around here. No, we don't have a lot of roots, root cellars, but uh, 
Um, I, it just all depends on how long you want to store it. Uh, I've kept it, gosh, for months uh, at a time. And, again, I've never braided it. That's certainly a space-saving thing. But uh, uh, just and, and I've got a bunch of those old trays that they used to sell soft drinks in, the big old plastic ones that they would deliver to the convenience stores in. And somebody gave me a stack of them. And, of course, they're... They got the that real um, oh I don't know what you call that bottom. It's got about fifty or sixty holes through it, and you can't stack it. But for putting one layer of either onions or garlic, I've stored garlic for a long time that way, and uh, it's held up pretty well. And um, I, I, the one thing I think she's overlooking about storing it in the refrigerator, which I don't think is all bad, is that our modern refrigerators don't have high humidity unless you're sticking it in the vegetable crisper tray. They, uh, you know, they they made them so to, they would dehumidify so that you wouldn't get that frost buildup that my mom had to, you know, always turn the refrigerator off and thaw it and let all that ice melt seem like every couple of months and that's what are your so-called frost-free refrigerators which is what we've had for you know a lot of years now they're frost-free because the humidity is so low in those things so uh i don't know i you, you might get away with storing it uh uh in the refrigerator but like i say i wouldn't put it in your vegetable crisper or anything like that where the humidity is going to be somewhat higher okay the book says uh Get the buzz ready, get the tea tape down, get it planted, and then mulch it. Well, if we do all that, that's going to put a side out there for the armadillos to root it up. So, Sure, yeah. I, I've never I've never really mulched it. Well, what about covering it with some uh, uh, fence wire uh, and staking it down and that to keep the, the little animals out of there? You, that wouldn't hurt anything, would it? Well, it'd be it'd be some extra work, and it'd be uh, uh, it would pretty much force you when you went to harvest it to do it all at once. You know, I I tend to I leave the garlic in the ground the majority of it until those tops fall over. But that doesn't mean that if I need a little garlic uh, earlier in the season i'll just go through and pull one here or there just like i do my onions because i like small onions as well as liking big onions but i've not found that many creatures really go after garlic it's never never been an issue in my garden the only thing that i uh that i think you've really got to watch on garlic you've got to keep it well watered if you don't keep it watered you'll have problems with thrips on it but uh i've i, I can't say that i ever remember uh, a rodent going after my garlic. Maybe I've just been lucky, but uh, that goes for regular garlic and for the elephant garlic, too. So the tea tape would... Uh, I was going to put the tea tape down, and then it's got a slit every eight inches, and that's where I was going to plant the garlic. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. If your rodents are going to chew on anything, it's probably going to be your tea tape <laughs> when it gets dry. Okay. But, uh, yeah, garlic, garlic for me is one of the easiest crops to grow and one of those useful crops because, uh, of course, it's delicious to cook with, but it's also you can make some darn good insect-repelling sprays out of it, mosquito-repelling sprays out of it, you know, or you can just mince it up and, uh, you know, put it around as an insect repellent. I'd... I, I'm a big fan of garlic, and it's so healthy. I, 
I don't think I have any Italian blood in me, at least not for the past six or eight generations, but I do love garlic. Okay, well, I'm going to get that three-pound load next. Well, Johnny says you can order it any time. Just send money, and uh, they give you a receipt. And then when the time comes, the middle to the last part of September, uh, your garlic mysteriously shows up on the front porch. They'll send it. That works. That works. I've always said October was the best month to plant, but Howard Garrett says he plants it, you know, uh, 12 months out of the year, and uh, I don't think he gets his big pods with some plantings, but uh, says it grows and, you know, makes a nice plant and will give you, if you're not trying to make big pods, if you're not saving those cloves for other things, uh, uh, he says you can plant it almost any time, but uh, I agree with you. I think the best time is going to be late September through the month of October is going to be your best planting season. And I'd encourage you to try two or three different varieties and report back to us because, like I say, I'm, and I imagine Johnny's has got a got a reasonably good selection, but uh, um, when you're dealing with somebody in a different part of the country, they don't always know what's going to do best in our area. So, Take their advice, but try two or three different ones and see which one works best for you. Okay, Bob, well, you have a good day, and thanks for taking my call and answering all my questions. Well, you always share your good information with us, uh, so you get out and have a wonderful day as well. And no, we'll talk again, James. And uh, everybody else, give me a call, 210-599-5555, back right after news here on KTSA, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening and back to all the good things that go on around South Texas in the Hill Country. And, uh, you know, take calls from a pretty wide-ranging area, but I'll have to tell you, this area... Is is where I certainly have the most experience. So much as I'd love to hear from Kim up in Hershey, Pennsylvania, that used to call us all the time. Uh, I can't tell you how to grow things very well in Philadelphia or or wherever else if it's way way away. But if there's something you want to talk about related to our area, or if you want to talk about organics in general, I actually ran into somebody at the big gift market over in Atlanta last week. That's uh, from Kreutzberg, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, and. Said, oh, you'll never, you've never heard of the place where I'm from, and I said, yes, I have. That's where Rodale is, the kind of the center for organic gardening for the past 50 years. But anyway, uh, I'd love to talk about gardening, talk about plants. So if you've got a question, give me a call 210-599-5555. Wanted to say just a couple more things about. Uh, the tree damage uh, from the ice last week and I was talking to uh, uh, David Vaughn kind enough to uh, fill me in on a little bit about how a good arborist looks at it and that is uh, that where you have a major splintering break it really does need to be painted because that's going to form sap and that could attract the little nitty doodle beetles that could carry the oak wilt spores but, you know, so it's a week's past, and somebody asked me yesterday, well, what if the beetles have already gotten in and left some oak wilt spores behind on that wound? And that's why I say that uh, it is good many times where you, where you just had a, a branch break and fall, rather than just leave that stub sticking out. There are a lot of reasons to do this, but go ahead and cut it back, not flush, but cut it back to the branch collar, which is that little ring of cells right where the limb comes out of the trunk or comes out of another branch. You cut it back to that point, 
and then coat it. doesn't have to be pruning paint. It can be any kind of paint that seals that wounds, keeps the insects away from them for a couple of weeks. That's all you really need to do. But you don't want to cut the branch collar. That will slow down on the natural healing, and you don't want to leave a long stub sticking out because then the tree will not heal itself properly. Eventually, that little stub will rot, and that can lead to ultimately having that uh, kind of deterioration go further down into the limb and into the trunk itself, and that's how we end up with trees, uh, hollow trees. Now, hollow tree is uh, about 80% as strong as a solid tree, so it's not the end of the world if you have a, a hollow tree. I know a lot of folks that have lived with hollow trees for many, many, many years, and they come through storms and everything just fine. But um, nah, there's no doubt that it would be it would be better uh, if you had a solid trunk and had solid limbs. And making your cuts, your pruning cuts properly, is one of the things that will certainly help you with that. And like I say, uh, two or three things about cutting. Number one, if it's a very big limb, make your first cut some distance out from the trunk to take the weight off. Because the last thing you want to have happen is to start cutting, then have that damaged piece start to fall and strip the bark off, you know, several feet down the tree or at least several inches down. And then you've got a lot more area to clean up, a lot more area to paint. Make that first cut at least a foot or 18 inches out away from the trunk from where your final cut is going to be. Uh, make that cut out and then make your second cut back just outside of the branch collar. Seal that and the regrowth starts almost immediately overgrowing that wound uh, so that uh, it will it will heal properly. Well, it looks like people are waking up. going to be Mateo and Tom and Kim. So uh, let's get started. And uh, you're up first, Mateo. Good morning. Good morning. Morning, sir. Yes, um, I have some uh, mountain cedars that the foliage just, thought they all started to turn brown. Not all, but, uh, but you know, a handful of them. And I yep. was just wondering, is the tree going to rebound from that, or should I just chop that down? Big tree or little tree? Um, both. There's a okay. couple smaller ones. The small ones are probably dead. Uh, the small ones probably, the drought, which is more than they can handle, um, you know, with with such a prolonged time with with no rain, the bigger ones, if they are if if they're crispy to the point that all the foliage comes off, they may be dead. But most of those are going to come back out. Most of them are just going to drop. Maybe a few limbs will not come back out that you'll need to trim. But uh, when I look at the cedars that are you know have eighteen inch caliper trunks on them you know that cedar's been there for a hundred years and it's been through several droughts in that time now so I, I guess my point is if you like them uh you can certainly leave them now cedar of course is uh um it, it's not really a water hog it doesn't use more water than other trees do but it does catch the first half inch of rain that falls and keep the water from getting to the ground underneath it they can create so much shade that you won't be able to grow much grass or anything else around them so a lot of folks replace the cedar with uh with other trees that have more i should say good qualities i guess the other thing about having cedars in your yard if you really develop landscape if you put in grass and water regularly uh, you'll actually kill the cedars with too much water so uh, if you like them leave them if you're developing a landscape you 
you may or may not want to replace them with a tree that is a little bit more desirable. I'm not going to condemn them like a, a few really bad trees that I do, but uh, um, they, uh, they they are much more problem-prone than cedar elms, escarpment cherries, uh, Mexican live oak, bur oaks. They're a lot better trees to have growing in your yard long-term. Okay, yeah, this is on some property, so... Um, I'm slowly replacing them out with other trees. I just don't want to yeah. cut everything yeah. off to, to begin with. But, well, uh, any, anything question. that, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, one other thing first. Anything that is brown and stays brown, just to reduce the fire hazard with it, I would very definitely make those high on your priority list to cut those trees out. Okay, I'll do that. And then the, um, I don't know if it's a moss, but that's the bright green and grows on the ground, mostly in like dappled sun around yep. the... Um, what is that called? Well, you've got a couple of different things. You've actually got a couple of hardy algaes that grow that make just kind of a layer. And then you've got, if it looks kind of almost fuzzy looking, that is a true moss. And both of those things are the result of uh, the ground staying pretty moist, which is awful dry for a long time. But the past three weeks, we've had good moisture in the hill country. So if it's fuzzy, it's probably a moss. If it's... Uh, uh, if it's smooth and a little bit slicker looking, it's probably an algae. Uh, on trees and rocks and things, you can actually get a lichen growing, but uh, mosses and algaes, both of them are very common right now. And neither one of them bad right. in any way. Yeah, I just like the way it looks. <laughs> well, keep on moistening it, and, uh, and, and it will stay there. In real sunny areas, it's going to kind of die out naturally when the hot summer sun hits it. But uh, you can have a nice uh, – people actually, believe it or not, people have moss gardens where they plant different kinds of moss. So you're in good company if you like them. They're, they're interesting things. They, they just are very moisture-demanding to keep them looking good. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, sir. You're my pleasure. I should appreciate the call. Thank you. Next in line is Tom. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Good morning, uh, sir. I have a, this is a fig tree pruning issue, and it actually goes back to the prior cold spell that we had several, where it got really cold. Yeah, 21, twenty twenty one. that winter. I had a very large fig tree that I had to cut down to the ground, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, it came back up, put a lot of shoots up. I trimmed it back, cut back all but four mm-hmm. uh, roots that, I mean, uh, shoots to become the uh, the majors. And in the, uh, I guess last year, the year before, the uh, deer got in there and rubbed them, and I had to cut <laughs> them down. Always something. Yes, sir. And so now I have got it at least 60 shoots shooting up from the core of this thing. And I'm going, how do I prune this thing and uh, to make it look right and uh, and give, you know, bear well and have all the space that a pig's trees need? Because somehow, I mean, I've got 60 shoots that all look identical. <laughs> well, the figs tend to grow as a bush much more commonly than they do as a tree. A fig tree is going to be susceptible to breakage in the wind it's going to produce the majority of its fruit up high enough that it's hard to reach so the only reason really to prune a fig into a tree is just cosmetic if you just like the look of it better otherwise i tend to just at least initially just let it go and i would definitely thin it out 60 little shoots is going to 
make such a thick clump that you're not going to get enough light for the figs to grow well. But as far as shaping it, I, I tend to leave a lot of the little limbs and the figs in my landscape or up around my barn, they probably have uh, at least eight or ten and I don't know whether you call them trunks or just call them major branches. You want the tree to be open enough that it gets some light through it because that's going to cause your figs to ripen a little bit better. But uh, there, there's no hard, fast rule for this is how you this is how you prune a fig. Um, I would not. I wouldn't wait until they get just huge before I go in and thin it out. I'd be thinning now, so your tree's not going to put on a bunch of uh, you know waste its energy putting on something that you're just going to cut off. But at this point, if you've got 60 little shoots coming out, I'd probably take 40 of them off and leave 20 of them on a month from now when you get a little bit better idea of the spacing and the direction they want to grow. Then I would go back in and reduce it down to 4 or 6 or 10 or however many <laughs> meet your standards. And figs are going to produce. As long as you're getting relatively good sunlight and plenty of moisture, um, it, you're not going to stop a fig from producing. You're going to get lots of figs, whether it's true and more tree-like or whether you leave it as a bush. Um, fertilizer, water, mulch around it, uh, you'll have probably more figs than you can eat. Well, that's all I had, and I just wanted to, to get a second opinion because you know, <laughs> these are these are like eight-foot-tall shoots right now, and uh, it's just, oh, it's nuts. <laughs> well, I, again, uh, we'll you don't... Yeah, you don't have to uh um you don't have to trim it at all. You can just let it do its thing. Now, it will thin itself out. I mean, the limbs that are shaded out by others, you'll have some of them, you know, die back just totally normally. So, um I would help that process along. I mean, there's no way it's going to have 60 healthy limbs coming up by the middle of the summer so do some thinning but uh, as far as shaping a fig tree they don't really lend themselves to being anything other than a big bush so uh, don't get frustrated with it all right well thank you very much it's always a pleasure i thank you sir um kim hang on just a second need to get a break in here and you will be up next I get to talk for a moment about Connecticut, and once again, what did we have in the ice storm last week? We had lots of power outages all over the area. Lots of people lost uh, power for more than 24 hours, and if you've got one of those old standard water softeners you hear all the ads for, your water softener didn't work. Without electricity, that other group of water softeners doesn't work. My Connecticut just kept right on working through that uh, power outage. I don't even know if the power went out much where I was, but that's one of the many advantages to Kinetico. It runs on the energy in the water, the kinetic energy. That's where the name Kinetico came from, of course, but without any plugs or any connection to the power source, you don't have to worry about power surges or lightning strikes or power outages. Your Kinetico is going to be right there softening your water regardless of what the electricity situation is. And it's going to do it much more efficiently because Kinetico, the rosin only needs rechar only recharges when it needs to be recharged. Your electric ones, they pretty much recharge on a preset schedule whether it needs to recharge or not, and that wastes a lot of salt and a lot of water. I can go on and on about all the reasons I love my Kinetico system. You're never going to run out of soft water because it's a twin tank system and it recharges itself when it needs to be recharged. They're also very reasonably priced, certainly no more than the, the ones you hear everybody else advertising. And Kinetico is so sure that you will love your, your water softener, they give you 90 days before you really need to pay for it. 
If you'd like to learn more, if you want the water softener like I have, you can go to KineticoSA.com for lots more information, or you can give them a call at 210-656-PURE. That's 210-656-PURE for Kinetico. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. My next two callers are Kim and Danny, and Kim is up first. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I I don't know if he's still listening, but uh, I, I woke up a little late, and I heard James talking to you about growing the garlic. Right. And I know he likes to buy stuff from uh, Johnny's, but <laughs> there is a farm in Arizona that I've gotten garlic from, uh-huh. and that's all they do is grow garlic. Oh, yeah, and they're so good. There are a lot of good really, garlic growers around, yeah. Yeah, and I thought he might want to check out their website and look <laughs> into the different varieties. <laughs> I, I'm with you. And tell me the name of the, of the grower that you, that you like in uh, Arizona. It's called Forever Young, Y-O-N-G, farm.com. Forever Young. <laughs> Cute little play on words. <laughs> but, exactly. Uh, yeah, they're yeah. they're and I mean and, it's sold, everything's sold out right now, of course, because they haven't harvested. But he can call and get, you know, he can look at the different varieties they have and mm-hmm. he can call and get prices. But um, and then on Central Texas Gardener, there was a piece. Uh, it's a very old piece. Um, mm-hmm. uh, these women in Dripping Springs started growing garlic. Uh, they're called the Dripping Springs Garlic Queens, and um, they talk about a couple of varieties that they like, and that's all they do is grow garlic. But I think they sell at retail. Um, you're like giving me growing. you're giving me a couple of couple of websites to check out. Dripping Springs Garlic Queens, <laughs> that's cute. Yes, and yeah, so um, they, I don't think they sell it to the general, you know, like like Forever Young Farm sure, sells sure. garlic, but they. Well. Um, are growing garlic, so he might uh, look at that Central Texas Gardener piece for some, some and, tips. And anybody that's going to the West Coast, if you're if you're driving around in uh, Northern California, Gilroy is, of course, the garlic capital of the world, and uh, I think that's where a high percentage of the garlic that's sold across the country comes from. And uh, you can find you can find a bunch of good garlic growers out there as well. Yeah. But uh, but it's, I don't uh, know that that does as well in Texas as, yeah. as some of these other garlics. There are like yeah. Creole garlics and turban garlics, and uh, mm-hmm. they do quite well here. I mean, Arizona is not exactly cool. <laughs> No, but there again, there's so many different ones, and I'll tell you the one garlic that I have found that that grows just everybody I've ever talked to about growing it is uh, what they call elephant garlic, which is a it's actually a different genus of garlic, but uh, and it's a very big pod, and frequently oh gosh, especially the West Coast restaurants and things they actually bake it, stuff it, and bake it, and it's absolutely delicious, but. Uh, uh, elephant garlic grows extremely well, reproduces profusely, and uh, has pretty flowers as well. So uh, if you've never grown elephant garlic, I would encourage you to give that a try, too. It has bigger bigger corms or, or bigger uh, cloves, and, uh, you know, the overall pod is much larger. But uh, 
Uh, it has grown beautifully for me in the hill country, so that's, that's another one I encourage people to try. And I know Howard Garrett grows it very well in North Texas, too. Yeah, a friend of mine's um, uncle used to have a farm just south of San Antonio, and mm-hmm. and he grew elephant garlic all the yeah. time. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it does well. As, it um, it too, does but. grow, and it is one of the healthiest things you can eat, and um, uh, it's good for your digestion. I, I'm a garlic fan, as you can tell. Good for your heart. I, I think it's a <laughs> it, it's a good thing. Plus, it sure does sure does taste good in a lot of different dishes. So uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. It's fun to grow your own garlic. It is. It is. Well, so. thanks for sharing with us, Kim. Any any other special? <laughs> hints you would pass along to people that helps you grow it better um i i had put some at a community garden and i didn't water well enough mm-hmm. and, and i think your soil has to be prepared because i i'm sort of where i have more clay in my soil and it yep. doesn't like that much at all no. you really no. have to amend it with lots of compost if you have clay soil or this and, is one and, place that a very water. shallow raised, yeah, very shallow raised garden, just raising it up six inches or so, um, will will help with that a great deal as well. And and like you say, plenty of water too. But um, yeah, that's it. So, well, you <laughs> get out and have names. a <laughs> and everybody else out there. Appreciate the call, Kim. Yeah. You get out and have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Thank you. Next in line is Danny. Good morning, Danny. Uh. Good morning, Bob. Uh, morning, sir. I'm I'm right in the middle of uh, putting out my first application of, of corn water tea on my live oaks. Very and good. What I needed wanted needed to find out from you. I forgot. Uh, how long do you let that set and so so to speak ferment before you put it out after you Over, mix it up? Overnight. Overnight. Just if you overnight? mix it up, yeah. If you mix it up one afternoon, it'll be ready to go the next morning. Okay, I I was thinking I had needed to wait a little bit longer to do that. But yeah, it's not going to hurt to wait longer. But uh, if it starts fermenting, then especially if you're out in the country, then you start getting hogs and other creatures interested in it. So uh, now, if you right. do it in the afternoon and put it out the next morning, you've activated the trichoderma, and that's what uh, in turn helps the trees with what we call the. Uh, systemic induced resistance right and that's what right. it's all about so yeah if you, if you do it you know uh put your two cups to five gallons of water in the evening it'll be ready to go the next morning all right well that's what i needed very good thank you i appreciate the call thank you sir uh-huh. <laughs> goodbye all right got a couple of open lines grab one if you like and i'm going to talk to you about somebody else who will tell you all the good things about garlic especially kyolic garlic um, and that is Rhonda out at Rhonda's Nature's Way. She and her staff are so expert at helping you with so many different natural things. They're going to help you live better, going to help you keep your immune system strong, going to help you heal when you have issues and, you know, specific things, digestive issues, sleep issues. And, uh, guys, uh, you know, those, those frequent nighttime trips, uh, she has a, prost- uh, a product called Prostate 6LX that, uh, really, really can make a difference. So just if anything is bothering you, why don't you talk to Rhonda and see if she has a solution when it comes to your good health. I know you can keep going to the doctor, keep getting prescriptions, but you're treating symptoms with the things Rhonda wants to help you with. You're going more for the cause of the problem. And that's the way to solve things long term. Allergy issues, 
I tell you, I trust her seasonal allergy relief for all those minor allergy issues, about the only things that bothers me. But if you've got that serious cedar pollen issue, then you need to know about the Cedar X that she carries. I could go on and on about all the different supplements, all the different things. If you're looking to lose a few pounds, well, she's got some things that will help and uh, give you satisfy your sweet tooth at the same time. We're talking mock fruit, sweetened chocolates, and Oh, things that just make my mouth water to think about. Rhonda is, uh, you know, open six days a week. The location is there in the shopping center corner of I-10 in Callahan, kind of across the parking lot from Sprouts. If you want to live better naturally, and by the way, she's doing lots more reflexology now because she's uh, well-staffed at the store. Reflexology, red light treatment, beamer light therapy, uh, just lots of great things when you go visit Rhonda at Rhonda's Nature's Way, open Monday through Saturday to serve you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Looks like we've got David and Angel and Faye waiting to talk. David is first in line. Good morning, David. Hey, Bob. What are you doing, man? Just sitting here talking to the nicest people in the world, and that'll be my fellow gardening friends. What about you? Oh, there you go. Uh, you know, so I'm wondering, like, um, I'm living here in downtown San Antonio, just off of 37 and Fair Avenue. Okay. And I've got a little house here with a little yard, and I'm wondering what, can I, what kind of grass can I plant um, it, that will retard fleas because I got a couple of dogs. I got two dogs, and <laughs> I'm trying to. Want, I'm wondering what kind of grass I can put in the yard to retard fleas. Well, fleas are not going to be paying any attention at all to what kind of grass that you plant. But I'll tell you how you stop the fleas 100. Uh, percent You get these little. You no know, harmless creatures that are called beneficial nematodes. My favorite form comes on a little blue sponge, a million nematodes to a sponge, and it will treat up to 2,000 square feet. And once or twice a year, you simply you put this little sponge in water and soak it for a few minutes and then spray your yard. You will not have fleas. You will not have uh, fire ants. You will do it at the right time. You will not have grub worms. Uh, they're harmless to your dogs and harmless to you. But uh, every time, and I live in the country, and I've got deer and squirrels and rabbits and 16 other kind of critters trying to bring fleas around constantly, and uh, my dogs and kitty cats, uh, I, I keep a close eye on them. And every time that I have had to treat for fleas, it's been like two years before I had to treat again. So rather than go out and spend $2,000 on grass, you need to spend less than $20 on some beneficial nematodes. Do it this time of year. Do it in June, and fleas will not be a problem. So is there a name brand, or could you point me in the direction of a product we, for this uh uh, you can just add, ask any good nursery. Um, I'm not sure who's closest to you. Fanix might be closest to you. They're over kind of on the east side of town, not too terribly far from you. And uh, I'm pretty sure they keep them in stock. We keep them in stock at Shades of Green. I think Rainbow Gardens keeps them in stock. But uh, just ask for beneficial nematodes, and uh, uh, you're not going to find them at Home Depot. 
but um, they'll know what you're talking about. And like I say, they will take care of a lot more than just flea issues. Now, um, you may have to, inside your home, obviously you can't use them, uh, but your vacuum cleaner is your best device you've got against fleas inside. I vacuum cleaner. I, I kid you not. Yeah, fleas, fleas uh, they like to reproduce. And for every flea you see, there are about 20 more in the larval state and everything. And they like to get down in the upholstery on your uh, thick chairs and your couch and things like that. So believe it or not, oh, yeah. just yeah. just vacuum thoroughly in there. And uh, the other thing you can do if there's a real problem inside your home, I mean, last resort is set off one of those bombs, but that's poison stuff that I don't like. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. yeah, but what you can do is take yourself a bucket, any kind of bucket, uh, fill it you know, half full of water and put a little soap in there, and put a hang a light bulb or get one of those clip-on little reflector lights, uh, put it above the bucket. The fleas are attracted to the heat. Don't use an LED bulb. Use an old-fashioned light bulb. And the fleas jump at that heat source. Then they fall down in the water and drown. And uh, it's been several years since I had a big flea infestation <laughs> Dang, in my a, house. That's yeah. a really good idea, man. But it and it really really does work. But uh, and talk to your veterinarian, uh, or you can call Doctor Kirby here tomorrow morning. We do pets from eight from eleven till twelve, and uh, Dan will tell you what he recommends uh, uh, for you know for your puppy dogs. And uh, it it is important because fleas carry tapeworms and various other things. So oh, yeah. Yeah. you, you got to do yeah. you got to do three things. You got to do the house, the dog, and the yard. And you asked me about the yard, but I hear we got off onto a little, a few other things. But as far as fleas in the yard, beneficial nematodes is all you need to know about. You don't need to go spend thousands of dollars on some special grass because it doesn't exist. <laughs> there, there's no grass okay. that's going to repel fleas. Yes, sir. I appreciate your uh, insight. Well, I love puppy dogs, and I don't want uh, I don't want them chewed up with the fleas or you either one. So uh, you call oh, yeah. me if you've got more questions, and we'll do our best to help you out. All right, Bubba. Have a good day. You do the same. Thank you, sir. Uh, next in line is Angel. Good morning, Angel. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. I've got a question about some live oak trees. Okay. I've got young bulls. I guess it's about four foot, almost five foot tall live oak. Uh-huh. Uh, the deer got a hold of it, and I guess with their antlers went on ahead and right in the middle of it, basically stripped off a lot of the bark, all the branches. All I got now is green on top and green at the bottom. Okay. Where they stripped off the bark, did they go all the way around the tree, most of the way around the trunk, or just here and there? All the way around the, the, the middle of it. Okay. Um, you need to go to Howard Garrett's website, which is dirtdoctor.com. Get his recipe for what they call tree goop, G-O-O-P. And as soon as possible, mix up a little bit of that and slather it over the area where the bark was rubbed off. Now, don't use pruning paint. That's going to set it back rather than help it. If it has not dried out too completely, uh, painting the tree goop on and... uh, you know, some people will then take a little piece of tar paper or something like that and wrap around to help hold it in place. But if you don't do anything, the tree will almost certainly die. It takes about a year. The tree sits there and looks good because the central part of the trunk, that white wood that is left, 
that's the part of the tree that takes water from the roots up to the top of the tree, and that hasn't been hurt at all. But that outer layer just underneath the bark called the phloem, P-H-L-O-E-M, that's what takes the nutrients from the leaves down to the roots. And if that gets completely removed, um, then it cuts off the roots' nutrient supply, and when they run out of stored nutrients, the tree just folds up and dies. That, that's how our forefathers 200 years ago cleared trees off the land as this country was settled, but we don't want to clear the oak tree off of your yard, so as soon as possible, paint that area with tree goop, keep it uh, moist, and keep your fingers crossed. Okay, that's tree goop, and yeah. what's the website again? Dirtdoctor.com Dirtdoctor.com, got it. Yeah, I'll be, the guy who does that is up in Dallas, uh, named Mr. Howard Garrett. He's written a bunch of books and uh, uh, just a super, super, super knowledgeable gardener. Uh, we'll do a little interview with him here at 8 o'clock. We talk every Saturday morning about 8 o'clock about different things. I have no idea what today's topic will be. But his website, even though it's Dallas, is very, very applicable here and the formula, you go in there and just, uh, he's got a little section on there that you can put in what you're looking for information, information on. And you want the recipe for tree goop. It's simply rock phosphate, and uh, there, it's, it's really easy to do and, and pretty cheap ingredients. But uh, do that as quickly as you can on your tree that the uh, deer beat up. And I'll tell you what I do because I live in deer country in the hill country. I take and... Uh, just ordinary steel T-post like a bill fence with. I will take and yeah. on like a three-inch diameter tree, I'll take maybe two T-posts and I'll just put them up against the trunk and put a piece of wire on top, piece of wire on the bottom. Bigger tree, obviously more posts, but I leave those up from uh, about June until, uh, you know, probably February or so and uh, and then just pull them off. But uh, the, the bucks... They can start rubbing. Uh, it's, uh, the rub usually starts sometime around September, and then what we call the rut, their breeding season, you know, kicks in uh, with the first really cold weather. But once the velvet matures on the antlers, they're going to try to rub that off on your tree. They're also marking the area and leaving their scent behind to try to keep other bucks from coming around. So uh, it's a problem we've dealt with for years, but I promise you they do not like rubbing those antlers on steel. And uh, I just put the T-post up and take them down according to the season, and uh, that stops them totally. Very good. All right, well, thank you very much. It is my pleasure. You get out and have a, uh, a great weekend. Uh, Faye, hang Likewise. on just a minute. Certainly, thank you. Uh, you know about commercials, so let me talk about Medina for a minute, and then you will be up next. Medina Agriculture, just a wonderful, wonderful company. Been around for over 50 years, right up there in Hondo, Texas. You can see their big plant from the road, as a matter of fact. And they've got a little uh, little shop there where they offer their products for sale in reasonable quantities as well. So if you're over in Hondo, you can always stick your head in and say hello. But the best thing to do is just go to your favorite nursery around because every good nursery in the area carries all kinds of good products from Medina. And this is the time of year you really need to be getting your spring fertilizing done. You don't want to wait till the growth starts. Your plants, uh, your soil microbes take a little while to digest that fertilizer and make it available to the plants. So look for growing green from Medina. Outstanding fertilizer loaded up with micronutrients and green sand and 
Oh, all sorts of good things. They also have great liquid fertilizers, the Has to Grow line, along with the liquid fish blend. They've got uh, great supplements, things like the Medina Plus, Medina Soil Activator. Those are not fertilizers, but they work on softening your soil, increasing microbial life in the soil. They'll really speed up the activity in your compost pile as well. Plus, they have so many different supplements. You just yeah, go to their website, medinaag.com, to look at everything they offer. Go to your favorite nursery or garden center to find those fine products. They don't work in the bag or the bottle, though. Don't just buy them. Get them and get them out soon, especially the fertilizers. Quality products from our friends at Medina. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Faye is the only person waiting, so if you want to grab one of those three open phone lines, you know the number, 210-599-5555. I get to say good morning, Faye. Good morning. Good morning. Good Good morning to you. Uh, it's all been interesting so far this morning, and I expect <laughs> to catch some more before uh, before I go to work. So, well, uh, I... It's 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 up to it's up to my listeners. I have always have plenty of things to talk about, but the most timely things. And you know, of course, I just get to talk to twenty, thirty, forty people per show. But I figure that your questions are going to benefit everybody else, and uh, you know, James's questions and uh, everybody's questions benefit a lot more than just you. So that's what keeps me going. Well, you're pretty valuable. I'll have to tell you, Bob. <laughs> I appreciate that. I have a few questions. Uh, I have some grass seeds. Um, from uh, if you just tell me if it's a good time and how to put them in. I've got some elephant grass, some bamboo, and some pampas. Bamboo muley, or what kind of? Uh... I think so. Okay, I have the ones you mentioned. Um, you need to let the soil warm up, probably April into May are going to be the best times for planting your warm season. What you're talking about are ornamental grasses. And, of course, only turf grass we really plant from seed is Bermuda grass, and that's a hot weather grass. We wait till May or June to plant it. But uh, ornamental grasses you're planting from seed probably any time after Easter. Easter's, what, the 7th of April or something like that this year. It's late. So I'm going to tell you just about any time after Easter you'll be good to plant. Okay, good. And then anything, um, how how deep should I put them? Uh... Basically, just rake the soil to where you've got bare dirt showing, and all you're really interested in is trying to have good seed-to-soil contact. Um, if you want to plant them very shallowly, uh, you can throw your seed out and then rake it again, and you'll you'll get the seed kind of worked in a little bit. But most all of the grass seeds, number one, they're not really attractive to birds, so you don't have to worry about the birds picking them up. Now, that's not true of ryegrass and oats and things like that that uh, are grown for grains. But ornamental grasses and things like that, uh, birds aren't much interested in. So you can just spread your seed, keep it moist, and most of them will germinate within a couple of weeks. Well, good. That That's real helpful, that it, how, how deep to put them. Good, uh, well, good germination there. Yeah. Um, then I have another question. I've had to do some cleanup, or I have to do some more today uh, in this property where um, 
there's been oil and or um, any other kind of um, auto contaminants. Yeah, yeah, contaminants. Could you give me the the uh, formula to do that? I have um, soil activator and I have orange oil. Just anything that would help mitigate that and feel a little better about the well, soil. To, miti- to mitigate petroleum products, uh, nothing's going to work better than molasses. Anything that ki- kicks up the microbial activity in the soil, hydrocarbons are basically food for microbes. So you give them a little bit of sugar and uh, your your microbes are going to take it from there. Medina soil activator is another good thing that will help you know, to do it and realize that uh, Stuart over at Medina has worked all over the world, literally, in cleaning up oil spills and things like that. He doesn't brag about all the good things he's done for the environment, but he's uh, he's saved a lot of people's lives and livelihood through helping with uh, pollution remediation. And uh, just, just molasses and something like the Medina Soil Activator is going to do a good job there. Now, where you have a true toxic chemical contaminant, Roundup or whatever, 2,4-D, that sort of thing, uh, a very finely ground charcoal, activated charcoal. Uh, there's one out there called Norit, N-O-R-I-T, but uh, even the charcoal that you get for your fish aquarium or something like that, if you can grind it up a little bit finer, but uh, that's going to help with uh, mitigating things that are you know, actively poisonous, so to speak, and uh, uh, that's what we recommend. Uh, there are cases where a bad pest control company, and this sounds crazy, but I've seen places where they got the address wrong and went out and sprayed their poisons on the wrong yard, and somebody's trying to stay totally organic suddenly has all this really nasty stuff uh, out there. Uh, then the activated charcoal plus something like molasses and soil uh, activator um, uh, that that's what's going to clean the soil up, and uh, you know you can certainly apply it more than once if you want to speed it up. And about how long would you expect? It will depend on the contaminant and how much of it there is. Uh, you know things are going to be better the next day, and a few months from now, uh, they're probably going to be you know really pretty much totally gone. But keep in mind that most of these things, uh, while they might be somewhat toxic to your plants, they're not likely to be taken up by the plants themselves. So it doesn't mean that you can't use the soil for other things in the fairly near future. But uh, how long it takes uh, is going to depend on the nature of the pollutant and, uh, uh, and a lot of other factors. Well, I sure appreciate you taking time to uh, thoroughly go over that. And uh, I'll, I'll put that to to good use and and not worry so much. Uh, Amen on that, Faye. Many thanks, Bob. You're certainly welcome. Thank you for the call. All right, just uh, I don't have time to take another call right after the news. We'll be talking to Julie and Carlos. But uh, speaking of pest control companies, I do have to say a very nice word about ABC. Um, We had uh, earlier, well, a little over a week ago, some very severe damage where rodents decided to chew through one of the walls of uh, of our building here at the nursery and rip out insulation and things like that. And we said, okay, what are we going to do? Who are we going to call? Anyway, called ABC because I've known people over there for many, many years. And by the way, they do have a chem-free division. But just a shout-out to Larry and all the all the good guys out there. They have really, really done good things for us as far as getting the problems under control. So uh, if you're going to hire a... 
a pest control company for bigger pests like uh, possums and, and raccoons. I, I just have a lot of nice things to say about them. Uh, this is going to be a great day for gardening, a uh, great day to clean up storm damage, a great day to prune your roses. Valentine's Day is next Tuesday, and we always talk about pushing, pruning bush roses right around Valentine's Day. Most of them you will want to cut back by about two-thirds at this time of year. Do not prune your climbers. Your climbers have already set their buds for spring bloom, so let them bloom first and then do any pruning. Of course, climbers we prune very little to begin with. But if you've got bush roses, if you've got knockouts especially, uh, I know they're probably putting on new growth, but uh, today would be a real good day to sharpen your shears and get out and work on those. Lots more things to talk about, which is what we will do right after news here on KTSA Radio San Antonio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Back to gardening on uh, what's going to be a, well, it's a little bit chilly starting out out there. You're definitely going to want a jacket if you're out early this morning. But uh, it turned into a pretty nice day. We've got some pretty good gardening weather coming up ahead of us. Uh, before I go back to the phone lines, I did want to talk about one other thing. Judy and Carlos, hang on. I will get you in the next uh uh, in this segment, but uh, there's going to be something very interesting. If you're a Hill Country landowner, especially uh, just north of San Antonio, they're going to have another FireWise workshop. We had one in Bernie a while back. They had a very successful one up, uh, I believe it was up in, uh, in uh, uh, Comfort couple of weeks ago, but uh, in Bergheim, you've got the JWP per, uh, Bergheim Fire Station right there, station number one, which is right there on Highway 46, just a couple of blocks west of the intersection with uh, 3351. Anyway, you really can't miss it. And this coming Thursday evening, uh, starting at 6 o'clock, it'll run uh, about 6 till 8, uh, there's going to be a FireWise program. It's just fascinating what the Texas Forest Service uh, has done, and there'll be lots of people there to answer questions. But they have this little table that you just have to see. Uh, they do like a relief map, and they have a special like projector they put up above it on a reflective surface. And you can pick a spot, and they probably, I don't know, they may do Cordillera. They may just do the area right around there to create this little thing. And you can pick a spot and say, okay, well, what if a fire started here? The wind's blowing from the south at 10 miles an hour. And then the computer shows you exactly how the fire would spread over this kind of terrain. And then you say, well, what if the wind was 20 miles an hour? What if the wind was blowing from the east? And it's not so much to help in fighting fires because, quite frankly, we don't have the equipment in Texas to respond to a fire quickly. And But it does show you areas that you can do things to... Uh, uh, to limit the spread of fire. I, you just have to see this to really believe it. But this is all free of charge. It's next Thursday evening. It starts at 6, and uh, it'll be right there right there in the JWP per, uh, fire station building, <laughs> station number one. They've got a pretty nice assembly room there. I hope there will be a good crowd. And uh, anyway, it's, it's certainly going to be worthwhile. I certainly plan to be there. And if you have property in the Hill Country, I think it would be very, very interesting to you. You would learn a lot. And um, who knows, if this drought continues, it uh, could help prevent some real tragedies. Okay, having said that, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Uh, Julie's first, and then Carlos. Good morning, Julie. Good uh, Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I would like you. To, uh, I would like you to tell me um, about the trichoderma wasp that you can put out er, uh, early. 
okay. we're quite a bit north. I'm in Oklahoma. Sure, and, sure. Uh, but last year we had a horrible infestation of bagworms and webworms. Right. And on trees we'd never had them on before, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, and I think uh, what what probably happened was that with the extra hard winter, uh, the cold killed out a lot of the natural enemies of uh, of all those different kinds of caterpillars. Now, <laughs> the words are very confusing, and I, I I say the wrong thing every now and then too. But trichoderma is the beneficial fungus. Trichogramma is uh, oh, is the little <laughs> that's, okay, that's your little that's your little beneficial wasp and. Uh, it's not too early to put out the eggs now. The way the eggs come, it'll be a little strip normally, a fairly heavy paper, and then, uh, you know, there'll be a 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000, depending on the uh, strip that you get, um, that you simply hang these strips out in the trees, and they're just a few dollars. They're, they're very inexpensive. What you're actually buying, that piece of paper is coated with caterpillar eggs. But those eggs have already been infected by the little, <laughs> I'm about to say the wrong thing, with the trichogramma wasp. So you simply hang these out. I use a piece of monofilament line. You want to put them where fire ants can't get to them. And I realize in Oklahoma, y'all don't have the problem we do here. But um, uh, it's I, I would think about if you've had a bad problem, I would start uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, and I would probably hang a few more out about once a month between now and uh, oh, in early summer. By early summer, uh, we've pretty much, if we can head off the so-called tent caterpillars, uh, um, then we're we're through the real damaging ones. But there are a lot of them that do get started early. It's a great question, but uh, I go ahead and. Uh, Get your trichogramma. Just ask for tea wasp, and most people will know what you're looking for. But I'd, I'd make the first release pretty soon since you had such a bad problem last year. Okay. First, number one, can you spell it for me, please? Just so I, if I uh, go online, I can get some. T, T is in Tom. T R I C H O G R A. M-M-A. That's close, and I, I think that'll, that'll get okay. you where you need to go. Remember what Mark Twain said when he said it is the sign of a limited intellect if a man can only spell a word one way. So I think I'm pretty oh, close, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty close oh. on that, but that'll get you to the trichogramma that you're looking for. And, okay. um, and yeah. can I, do you think that our, um, I mean, we have some very good nurseries, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard of anybody ever using these. So I, I mean, what if could I go online, or would that be something call I'd call be- your nursery and ask? Uh, it might be something they're interested in carrying, but um, I, you know, if they're if they're not really interested, or if they're not going to do it soon. Uh, by all means, go online. There's some there's some good places around. I don't have a name to give you, but uh, okay. if if you call. You know, call back to the nursery here, Shades of Green uh, Business Hours, and ask for Donna or ask for Wendy. Uh, they can probably share with you, you know, where we get them, and you could share that information. If you have a favorite nursery up there you'd like to see carry them, because in the refrigerator they will keep for weeks and weeks. They, uh, uh, it's not something they have sure. to sell, you know, within three days or something like that. Some okay. beneficial insects, yes, you have to release them almost immediately, but kept in the refrigerator, the trichogramma, uh, remain viable for you know several weeks. 
Okay, if we're on an acre and a half and we have quite a few trees, uh, and you said to put a, put it out, uh, put several spun, not sponges or strips, strips, yeah. uh, several strips out, um, like every month until like July. Um, if it, it really depends on all the different kinds of caterpillars you're targeting. Uh, February, March, April are going to be really important. I think May too. Okay. I mean, this will take care of the nutcase bearers on pecans. And um, uh, again, oh yeah, yeah, it'll take care of the uh, um, the little creature that lays the or it, it controls right. the eggs is what it controls. And okay. if you okay. if you um, end up ordering them online, uh, just to save on shipping costs, you could probably order two months at a time. I don't know that I would get more than that, but if you order All twice right. as many as you need, uh, they'd certainly keep for a month in the refrigerator. So. Uh, would save you having to have them shipped twice, uh, and four to six strips per acre is what they tell us. Okay. We've had a pretty bad infestation. Okay. Yeah, that's what I need. Okay. Oh, thank you, Bob, so much, and I appreciate it. And um, get get on it today. You call okay. us if you have need of any further information. We're always here to help All right. you, Julie. Thank, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Goodbye. All right, Carlos is next in line. Good morning, Carlos. Hey, good morning, Bob, and Happy good morning. New Year. <laughs> well, it's never too late to say uh, Happy Early Valentine's and Happy Late New Year. So uh, the both of there those back go. to you as well. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, is there a way to control the, the weed called sticky weed? Yeah, people call it Velcro weed or goes by a lot of different names. Um you can put out a pre-emergent herbicide will help with it. Um, also, you know, it's a very, very tender weed, and you can spray early on. When you first see it, it's, it's just bright, bright green in color. And spraying with your vinegar and orange oil, uh, that pretty much kills everything green. But at the time that weed comes out, uh, there's very little else starting to turn green, so uh, you can pretty much spray anywhere you have that coming up. And, of course, the mixture is a gallon of strong vinegar and two ounces of orange oil, little dish soap added to it, and uh, that will that will just totally stop it. And anything that escapes you, um, I just go out with a rake and uh, rake it up and put it on my burn pile if I don't get it killed early on. And um, it, it's interesting stuff. Uh, uh, the other name that it commonly goes by is bed straw because, believe it or not, our ancestors used to collect it, stuff mattresses with it, and uh, that's where the name bed straw came from. But uh, it's, maybe it's good for a mattress. I don't know, but it's, it's kind of a it's kind of a noxious thing to have in the garden. So if you're putting out pre-emergence for anything else, that will help control it. Um, I usually wait until it sprouts and then do it with the orange oil and vinegar. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, one more. Uh, poison ivy. Mm-hmm. Is there anything? <laughs> well, poison, there... poison ivy is tough. And, of course, you have to be very, very careful in handling it. And, uh, you know, don't ever put it on the burn pile because the smoke is poisonous if you're burning, burning poison ivy. What I normally do is cut it back to ground level. Just get in there with my shears and snip it off at the ground level. 
and then as it tries to come back, I will use vinegar orange oil spray. It's going to try to come back three or four times on you, so it takes two or three sprayings. But unless you're just immune to it, and some people are, I mean, you'd have to rip out the roots and the underground stems and everything. But uh, rather than try to spray the whole big vines, I'll just simply cut it back to ground level, watch that area, and then I'll spray two or three times through the spring as it sprouts, as it tries to come back, and that usually kills it completely. Okay. And I'll remember, give it a try. Remember, if you're handling poison ivy, if you're, you know, wanting to haul it off after you cut it or something like that, do not wear leather gloves because that oil will be soaked up into leather gloves and you'll pay for it later on. Wear rubber gloves if you want a heavy-duty rubber glove, uh, the ones they make for handling chemicals, which you can probably get at a pool supply or something like that. Uh, if it's going to be light duty, just get some uh, good, tough dishwashing gloves. But you can wash the oil off of a plastic or rubber glove, uh, but you can't with your leather glove. So save those for your briars and your other things. And uh, I just don't want you uh, knock on wood, and I haven't gotten into it recently, but when I was a kid, I was pretty much resistant to it. But I saw friends who really suffered, and what was that old song? You're going to need an ocean of calamine lotion. <laughs> You don't want to oh, deal with yeah. poison ivy, so uh, don't wear your leather gloves when you're when you're trying to control it. All right, I'll give it a try. Thank you for the information. Have a great day. You do the same, Carlos. Thank you for the call this morning. Okay. Yes, sir. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. All right. Uh, let's pause for a second here and talk about uh, talk about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. And I just love talking about. I'm sorry, I just talked about Fanix. Uh, I talk about nature's creation. That's who I get to talk about right this minute. And uh, those guys and gals just make some of the best natural and organic products you're ever going to find. I was just talking about pre-emergent herbicides. And if you use pre-emergents properly, you can have some pretty good results. Just as a broad-spectrum general use, I don't recommend them. But when I do recommend them, I always recommend corn gluten meal because that is a natural product. Now, in all honesty, if you've got a severe weed problem, you may have to put it out more than once. But it is just as effective as the toxic chemicals. But remember, pre-emergent means you have to get it on before the weeds sprout. Pre-emergent means it doesn't kill the weed seed. It actually allows the little seed to sprout, but it keeps it from forming a root. And then it shrivels and dies because it can't take up any water. Corn gluten meal that they have from Nature's Creation is also spreadable. It's in a large enough pellet. It'll go right through the spreader just like you put out your fertilizer. So many corn gluten meal products are a powder, which can be a real real pain to try to get out there. But uh, Nature's Creation spreadable corn gluten meal, good stuff. And uh, it works well if you get it on at the proper time against a pretty broad spectrum of weeds. So... Like all the other Nature's Creation products, they are just, they're made right here in Texas and they're absolutely top quality. You're going to find uh, great compost, great mulches, green sand, lots of different things. Uh, the fungicide cornmeal, Nature's Creation makes many, many fine products. You're going to find them at places like Hill Country, African Violets up in Bernie, King Feeds, Canyon Lake. You're going to find them, uh, Oh, golly, lots of different places, both Rainbow Gardens, Millburgers, the Plant House in both New Braunfels and Kerrville. And, of course, we keep lots of them here at Shades of Green. Quality products from Nature's Creation. 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, turning into daylight out there, and it's going to be a pretty day. Chilly starting out, but it looks like it's going to be a pretty good afternoon. Looks like it's totally calm, too. Hope we're not going to get the kind of wind we had yesterday. That was really chilly. The forecast, if you can believe it, says it's going to be lighter winds today, so should be a great day for gardening. We're going to talk to Michael and Jenny and Amanda in that order. Michael is up first. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? Off to a good start. Pretty day. Looking forward to it. That's great. I have a question about compost. I've been I meant to put some down earlier in the in the uh, in the year, but uh, I want to get around to it. And I just have a couple of questions on it. What type of compost to try to stay away from? I stay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I stay away (laughs) from the uh, the biosolids compost. It okay. is, it's not, you know, and I don't object to it because it's uh, human waste. I mean, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not sure that's, that's any worse than most animal that, manures. That, but, that's, but, enough, that's enough said right there. <laughs> well, but, but I want to tell you why. And okay. that is okay. because our waste stream is so much more toxic now than it once was, mainly because of hormones and pharmaceuticals and uh, things like that that are in there. Now, I don't have the you know real problem with putting it on grassland. Somebody's you know raising grass or something like that, hay or something, and they say you know it's the only thing I can afford. Um, well, that's probably okay. But on my yard, I'm going to use a good either just vegetative compost or a good manure compost. But I, I'm going to stay away from the biosolids. That's the only one I really avoid. Now, I think some composts are better than others. All compost has, you know, its good points. But you realize that it's it's a little bit about the organic material in there, but it's a lot about the microbial life that is in the compost is what you're really buying. And there's one kind of microbe that breaks down, say, cow manure, another one that breaks down uh, vegetable matter, another one that breaks down. You can just go down the list, but they're different different microbes. So when you get a blended product, you get the greatest diversity of microbial life. And that is what I think is absolutely best. But now, if you want a straight product like cotton burr compost or like mushroom compost, those are good products as well. They just don't have quite the diversity. But I would not have any hesitation about using, you know, cotton burr compost or mushroom compost for yard application. But if you have somebody near you that does, uh, you know, a blended compost, uh, that's what I choose to put on my yard. Great, great information right there. And and uh, one more thing, if you're gonna okay. if you're gonna buy it in a bag. Uh, Nature's Creation is the brand that I like, uh, but if you're if you're buying it bulk, you know, find somebody that carries a blended product like that. That was going to be my next question. Uh, I'm I'm out in Divine area, mm-hmm. and um, I'm looking for somebody uh, who will do it in bulk. And do you know of any anybody maybe in that area that does that? Um. I have someone who can pick it up and deliver it to me. I just want to. Yeah. There are, um, there's a place called Second Nature that's on the southwest side of San Antonio. Um, okay. They probably would. I'm not sure if there's, uh, and they they may have changed the name, but they're, uh, the company sold, but they're still carrying good products at Stone and Soil Depot. If you, uh, if you specify non-biosolids, 
Uh, they would probably be a good place. Interestingly enough, just yesterday I had a talk with Fred Morales, his Morales with uh, Morales yep. feed, and we were talking about the biosolids versus the other compost. And um, Fred was asking about biosolids just like you were, uh, and I told him, Fred, I would not put that on my yard. Uh, but if you've got somebody who wants to put it on their hay field, I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. And I was telling him, if you're going to carry the biosolids, you need to also carry a good blended compost mix that people can buy to put on their yard. So now give Fred a call. I, I don't know that he's had yeah. really a chance to act on it, but he is certainly right. probably closer to you than anybody else. But um, Yes, sir. Uh, ask him if he's got, just tell him, have you got that good non-biosolids blended compost that Bob told you to get? <laughs> and he'll think, who the heck is he talking to? But, uh, yeah, if if he's got the blended one, he he could certainly help you. If not, I think probably second nature or stone and soil is going to be your, your best choice in that area. Okay. Well, I appreciate all the information, sir. You have a great day. I appreciate the Thank call, you. and you do the same. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, next in line is Jenny. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. Good morning. I just have a question about trees. Um, okay. We have a new house. We want to plant a couple of trees. How far away from the foundation should that be? Congratulations on your new home, and where Thank are you. you located? We are at South of San Antonio. Okay, and is your home on a slab or on Parabeam? Slab. Okay, um, I would stay, I, I'm not worried about roots going under your slab. Everybody, uh, you know, says, oh, those tree roots are going to break up my foundation. If you've got a slab, and if they poured the slab properly, they put what's called a grade beam around the edge of it, which goes much further into the ground, and there's nothing underneath the slab that tree roots want. So they might grow up to it, but then they're just going to go laterally either direction. It's a different deal if the slab is poured on top of existing tree roots, but uh, that's not the case. Here you're looking to plant new trees. I am worried about the top of the trees rubbing on your roof, rubbing on the soffit, which is the you know, area around uh, the edges under the eaves. So I'm, depending on the type of tree, I'm going to stay somewhere between 8 feet and 20 feet away. If you have a tree that has a very, you know, low, widespreading canopy like a cedar elm or probably like a live oak, I'm going to be out there in that 15 to 20 foot range. If you have a tree that's going to be more upright, and uh, you know, not uh, not spread quite so widely. Um, like some people plant, I like the big crepe myrtles. You can buy a crepe myrtle to grow 35 feet tall. It's called Basham's Party Pink. You have beautiful flowers all summer, um, and uh, they those are very tree-like. And I wouldn't hesitate to plant that six or eight feet away from the slab. But if it's a okay. big, if it's a tree with a big canopy, then I'd say 15 to 20 feet away. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, and I'm guessing, well, yeah, as you said, the roots don't matter. The, our backyard slopes a little bit towards uh-huh. the house, so I guess that wouldn't really matter either. No, that doesn't really matter. If you have, and this is a time to do something about it, um, if you have a problem with water pooling up uh, against the house because the yard slopes down to it, this would be mm-hmm. the time to consider putting in what they call a French drain it's basically mm-hmm. just a trench that they go back and put a, some perforated pipe in and some gravel to carry the water off naturally. And uh, it's a lot easier to do that 
uh, before you before you get your landscape planning done and everything. And uh, without seeing it, I can't tell you exactly the best way to to divert that water. But um, anytime you've got you've got land sloping up toward a foundation, uh, you don't want to find out the hard way that it's gotten in and under your walls and things like that. So. You might have somebody take a look and see if a French drain's necessary, but no, the spacing would okay. be, you know, same same front and back, and um, where you are, you've got a choice of a lot of different trees. I would tend to stay away from uh, silver maples. Those are a real trash tree. I'm not fan of Arizona ash. They're not long-lived, and they have very, very shallow roots. Um, mm-hmm. One other tree, that, and, and if you get a redbud, uh, don't get an eastern redbud. Be sure you get a Texas redbud. The best variety of Texas redbud is called Oklahoma. Um, if you uh, if you want to plant, you know, a fruit-bearing pear tree, that's fine. But stay away from the ornamental pears, like the so-called Bradford pear. Uh, those things grow okay. about ten years beautifully, and then they totally fall apart. Um, so, um, but but your your standard shade trees, whether it's uh, cedar elm, bald cypress. Montezuma cypress, uh, you know, any of the oaks like bur oak or chinkapin oak or Monterey oak, these are the oak wilt resistant ones. I probably would stay away from live oaks and red oaks, but you've got a bunch of other oaks to choose from. Um, you're in a great area. You've got good deep soil, and your trees should grow very well. If you want the fastest growing tree you can find, uh, it's not going to be as long live, probably 50 or 60 years, but Mexican sycamore is going to make an enormous shade tree in just a few years if you're trying to hmm. trying to have some good shade for those kids to play under that I hear in the background. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, I appreciate the call. You get out and have a great weekend. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Uh-huh. Goodbye. All right, Amanda, hold on just a minute. Let's get a break done here, and then it will be your turn. I get to talk to you about Wild Birds Unlimited, another of my favorite topics because I just love the Wild Birds Unlimited uh, store here in San Antonio so much. And uh, don't tell any of the women on my list, but uh, I'll probably be shopping for Valentine's presents out there one day this week. I just, I just love Wild Birds Unlimited. It's one of my favorite places to go for gifts, especially for the person who loves outdoor things, not just birds. I mean, they are the experts in birding. If you're thinking about trying to attract purple martins, you need to get the post up now, get the houses up now, because we're just literally a week or two away from the time that the so-called scouts, which are just the unmated young birds, tend to show up looking for housing. They can tell you all about it out at Wild Birds Unlimited. They can always tell you all about attracting different birds in. It all depends on putting out the proper nutrition for them, and it's different winter and summer. The grocery stores don't know that, but Wild Birds Unlimited does, and they have the very best in feeders, many with a lifetime guarantee. Almost hummingbird season? Yes, they've got wonderful hummingbird feeders. There's a good Valentine's gift for you right there. (laughs) But they also carry a lot of just uh, ornamental and decorative things as well. Beautiful wind chimes. You you just need to go to the store. It's not a huge store, but you walk through the front door and say, wow, how did they get so many different things in there? Kyle and his staff, too, are so knowledgeable and love to help you with all your questions about nature and about birding. You just need to go see them. They're out in the shopping center at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner. Uh, northwest part of San Antonio, sort of on the side there that faces Northwest Military. Call them for current hours, but uh, they're usually open seven days a week. And let me tell you, you will always enjoy a visit to Wild Birds Unlimited. 
South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. And first in line is Amanda. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. How are you doing today, Bob? Off to a good start. It looks like a beautiful sunny morning out there from from my vision. At least I've got a nice window looking out over a beautiful garden in front of me. It's going to be a great day. Oh, that's great. I have a question on compost. Uh-huh. Um I was trying to make my own compost and it seemed like it was doing pretty good for a good 4 months. Mm-hmm. And then I got fire ants. Okay. <laughs> What am I doing wrong, or can I do well, something? Well, just about everybody that does compost, you know, gets fire ants. There are different things you can do. I love adding a little bit of dry molasses to the compost pile because it speeds up the composting action, and it also tends to uh, run the fire ants off. Fire ants do not like all the microbial activity it creates, so it may be as simple as just adding some dry molasses, which is going to make better compost and run the fire ants off. Um, if you want to kill the fire ants, you can do it with uh, just dilute some orange oil down and, uh, you know, put it in a watering can and just pour over the area that you've seen the fire ants. If you want to put out a bait, come and get it. We'll kill them. Uh, if you want to, if you're putting out beneficial nematodes for thrips and fleas and things like that, just put a little extra spray of beneficial nematodes into your compost pile and they will take care of the fire ants. So, uh, bad news is that everybody gets them. The good news is they are pretty easy to control. As far as actual prevention, I think the dry molasses or even liquid molasses, I think molasses is going to be your best thing that will make them not want to come around in the first place. Okay, that's good. And I've got some of that. Now, my compost is right by my chicken um, area. Mm-hmm. Um, if I use the molasses and they go into the chicken coop, would I be able to sprinkle some of that dry molasses in the chicken coop? Um, your chickens would probably want to eat it, uh, which is not going to hurt the chickens, but it's not going to get the benefit you're looking for. I think in the chicken coop, I'd probably get some liquid molasses and just sort of do a heavy spraying along that side of the coop. That's not going to bother the chickens, and uh, but uh, they're, <laughs> they're likely to decide that that makes a pretty good breakfast, and therefore you're not <laughs> going to get much benefit from it. So, <laughs> it, uh, okay. uh, I, yeah, I, I think I'd go with the dry in the compost pile, but I I think I'd uh, spray that area right along that side of the chicken coop with, uh, and and I'd put my molasses relatively strong, maybe two or three tablespoons per gallon. Okay, two or three. Also, um, I've uh, on the ladies' boxes, I've got that shredded uh, straw from Tractor Supply. Would I be uh-huh. able to add that to my compost? Sure, sure. Nothing okay. at all wrong with that. Yeah, it, uh, you know, the more it is shredded up, the faster it will break down, and um, uh, there's nothing at all wrong with that, that shredded material uh, going into the compost pile. In fact, a lot of people put newspaper in, make uh, compost from newspaper and shredded up cardboard, and uh, uh, they use soy inks on most of the papers these days, so that's not going to be harmful in the garden or in the compost pile. So, uh, yeah, there are a lot of different things you can do to bulk up the compost. Awesome. That's great. Okay. Um, one more question. Uh, sugar snaps. Is it, can I start planting those right now? Absolutely. Get them in as soon as you can. Okay. Very good. I got some work to do then today. 
Well, you've got uh, old Malcolm Beck used to say the only difference in work and play is the amount of pleasure you derive from it. And sounds like if you keep chickens and enjoy being outside, uh, it's just I look at it as a good opportunity to spend more time outside. Uh, let me give you oh, one more. Too. Well, let me give you one more hint about the composting, um, especially since you apparently have a pretty good source of raw material. I would always have two compost piles going. Because if you're constantly feeding your compost pile, as you should be, um, then your good compost is always going to be down at the bottom, and you're trying to move it off, then move it back on after you get your good compost out. What I do in my own garden is uh, I, will, I will fill one compost bin, and then while it is rotting and breaking down, I'll start filling the other. By the time the second one is full, the first one's ready, so I'll empty it out and then let the second one sit there and compost for while while I'm refilling the first one and just that way I've always got some compost ready and I've got some compost in production. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Also like um as I'm turning it, um I do water it a bit mm-hmm. and then put some more on and water it a bit. How often should I be turning it? Not very often. Um okay. and you can turn it if you want to, but here's the deal. That's a great question. When you turn the compost frequently, you encourage the bacterial component of your compost pile, but you break up the fungal component, which you don't, if you want the best compost, you want it produced by both bacteria and fungus. So most of your big producers now do what they call static pile composting, which means they go in and turn it no more than every six to eight weeks. Uh, so if you're doing it, you know, on that kind of schedule, you're fine. But I always think about people that get taken in by these so-called barrel composters and things like that, and I guess they're good exercise. But when you're when you're breaking up your compost that frequently, you're almost totally destroying <clears throat> most of your filamentous fungi, which uh, I want to keep. That, that white, thready material you see in the compost pile, yes, that's yeah. good stuff, and it's helping with the breakdown. So don't be turning it too uh. often. Okay, so um, so just keep it. Should I just keep it just then moist on top? Then if I don't turn it as often, yeah. like eight yeah, weeks, just you just uh, and on once, top. once you get uh, once you get those fire ants under control, you can always just you know stick your hand into the compost pile six inches in, and if it feels dry, you need to moisten it. If it feels warm and moist, uh, you're doing just fine. Okay. Um, one quick question on this: uh, the ants. Should I turn it to put the the molasses, the dry molasses, no. on it, or should no. I just put it right on top? Just sprinkle it right on top and sprinkle it fairly liberally. Okay. Okay. There you go. Okay. All righty. Sounds good. Great questions. I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. You do the same. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It's actually going to be Roy and Lewis and Russell, and Roy is on first in the list. Good morning, Roy. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? Well, I'm good. How about you, sir? I'm, I'm great, great. Bob, I just have some information for you. You had a call a little bit earlier looking for some book, uh, compost. Yeah. I think he said he was in the line area. Right. Uh, landscape Solutions on Highway 90, just east of Castroville a little bit. Oh, okay, yeah. Delivery. I've I've heard good things about them. I haven't been out there yet, Roy, but I appreciate you bringing them up. Yeah, Landscape Solutions yeah. are good people over there. They certainly are. Yeah, 
I bought from them, and they're pretty good, and they do deliver. Uh, probably a minimum amount, but I don't know what that is, but he can contact them. And, and <laughs> steal, you know. Well, you know, it's, it's most of them don't make a minimum amount, but they make the same delivery charge, whether it's one yard or 20 yards. And so the more you can buy, the if, if you figure out how much it costs you per yard, buying at least a, a standard dump truck is always a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And I think their website is soilsforsale.com. Uh-huh. It's not landscape solutions, but yeah. uh, if you're still listening, that'll give you an idea of a place to go. Roy, you're most kind to call and uh, pass that along to us. And good to hear your voice. Hope your year is off to a good start. I won't keep you now because I've got other folks waiting, but uh, thanks good. for the call. If we get, you're, if we get uh, more rain, we'll be better off than we are now. So. <laughs> amen, amen to that. <laughs> All right, next All in right, line well, is... Uh, likewise. Next in line is Lewis. Uh, good morning, Lewis. Good morning, Bob. I've got a question about moving plants. I'm actually yes, moving to another town in Texas in May. Okay. And I've got a good collection of daylily, amaryllis, uh-huh. and crinums. Yeah. And also asparagus. Would you dig and uh, pot them up now, or would you dig them and move them in May? Um. Okay, so you've got crinums, uh, you've got daylilies, and amaryllis. Amaryllis. And then I've okay. got a big asparagus plant. I'd like to move the crowns also. Okay, that you need to do. Well, actually, actually, all of them, if you can, uh, I would go ahead and dig them and put them in pots, especially your bulbs and your asparagus. Daylilies, they can be transplanted a little bit later into the year and transplanted very successfully. Uh, but your uh, uh, your crinums are almost certainly frozen back to the ground, so it's a good time to go ahead and get them in pots because they're just Actually, about to resume. A lot of leaves where, where I'm at, they're pushing. They're they've probably got six eight inches of growth on them. Yeah, they're, well, they're moving. then get them into pots as quickly as you can because yeah. the longer you wait, the more shocky they will be. Uh, same thing's true on your amaryllis. So get them going. Asparagus, uh, if yeah. You're going to need to put, if this is an established asparagus bed, you're going to need to put them in bigger pots. I mean, when you start digging, especially your crinums, you're probably going to find a lot of bulbs. And they don't have to go in an especially big pot, neither do the amaryllis. But uh, the asparagus, uh, they're going to do a lot of growing in the spring, so probably you know two or three-gallon pots, whereas most of the others will go in gallon containers. Okay. The daylilies, do you do you believe in cutting the leaves back when you start severing roots? Do you oh, cut it's, back the leaves back? it, it all depends on the daylilies. We've got evergreen, semi-evergreen, and the totally deciduous daylilies. I tend to let Mother Nature do her thing. Um, if you're going to go ahead and put them in pots, no, I wouldn't worry about it. Some of the leaves will go back naturally. Uh, if you wait and move your daylilies later, then I'd probably trim the leaves back by about 50%. Okay. Sounds good, Bob. Appreciate you. Well, how? what part of Texas are you moving to? Uh, from the coast over to Bryan area. Okay. Well, you're not going too far. Keep in mind that in Bryan, you're going to be delayed. Well, I guess it's not. It'd be the same. Uh, a lot of people have some challenges because of the amount of sodium, amount of salt in the soil in Bryan. But at the coast, you know all about salt in the soil. So... It, uh, you'll be doing with dealing with much more of a clay-type soil, but a lot of things are going to stay the same. So uh, keep listening and always let us help you any way we can. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, we'll finish up the calls with Russell. Good morning, Russell. 
Hey, Bob. Hey, this guy a question about uh, some oak trees. So, you know, Gorsh had a lot of damage with the uh, ice uh, a few weeks ago. Yep. And there's just some limbs that I can't get. How how long is a oak tree limb uh, you know, that's, that's been broke off? Uh, how long is it actually uh, in danger of getting oak wilk in that wound? A couple of weeks. A couple okay. of weeks. Now, we've had some warm weather. Um, if you had a limb that, let's say, broke off six feet out from the trunk, if I were concerned about oak wilt, uh, if I had oak wilt in my immediate area, I would get up there. If I could do it safely, I'd cut another six inches off the limb and treat just in case, because we've had some really warm days uh, after the ice storm that broke things up. So, um, if, like I say, if you're in an area with a lot of potential for spread of oak wilt, Anywhere you can reach it, uh, those uh, broken limbs. Since it's been since it's been over a week since uh, the, it happened, if you could cut them back even an inch further, and then uh, cut that and then coat that wound. And remember, it doesn't have to be pruning paint; it can be any kind of paint. Just good old latex spray paint will work just fine. Okay, and what, what the, where does oak wilt come from, and how does it spread? Well, it spreads two ways, uh, and I've only got a minute before news, but. Uh, with uh, the one way it spreads is through root grafts from tree to tree. They have an interconnected root system, and one tree gets oak wilt. It just spreads slowly, about 100 to 150 feet a year, to, to adjoining trees where the roots have fused together. What we're concerned about with wounds is a red oak, not a live oak, but a red oak that dies of oak wilt, forms something called a spore mat under the bark. It has a sugary secretion in there. And there can be millions of spores, but these little sap beetles, nitty-doodle beetles, ambrosia beetles, go in to feed on this sugary secretion there, and they pick up the oak wilt spores on their body. Then they go off to feed on the sap on the trees, which is their normal food source. They carry the spores, which is how a fungus reproduces, and deposit the fungal spores in into the new wound and that's how oak wilt can spread over a large area and that's what we're trying to stop now we can talk a little bit more after the interview with howard garrett if you'd like right now i've got to go to news on ktsa radio san antonio texas south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air talk to bob now 210-599-5555 but if you've been listening for very long, you know this is not the time to call. Call about 8.30 or so. We'll open phone lines up for the last few minutes of the show. But this is the time of the show that we visit with the Dirt Doctor, Mr. Howard Garrett. Good morning, Howard. Good morning. How's everybody? I think everybody is looking forward to a beautiful day out there. The weathermen missed it again, and we got a pretty hard freeze in the hill country, even though they said it was just going to barely get to freezing. But... That's sort of been <laughs> our story, and we, we protect things. We, we, we give them a five-degree margin. If they're within five degrees of uh, their forecast of what could be damaging, we go ahead and protect. And it's uh, fortunate that we did last night once again. So, But it looks like a gorgeous day out there. We Very windy yesterday, but this morning is totally calm and sunshine and blue skies. Yeah, I think we're going to have about the same here. It's... Um... You know, it seems to me that it used to be that when the uh, weather people said it was going to be a certain temperature, it never quite got that bad. But now <laughs> it seems to be going the other direction the last two or three times. I have witnessed the same thing you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and, and it's, it's hard on the homeowner, but, you know, when you're in the business, you – 
you know, the, the plants in your landscape and my landscape, they can suffer a little damage and come right back out. But uh, looking out this window at a few hundred of them, uh, if they get damaged cosmetically, that's much more serious. So we, we moved a lot of plants last night, and lots of them, the guys have already gotten moved out this morning. So it's beautiful once again, but uh, I just uh, just don't trust them. They it's <laughs> somebody called me last time we had one of these and said the weathermen have any liability can i sue them for all the damage that happened when they said it wasn't going to get cold and i only say i wish you could because it uh uh it, it's been it's been challenging this has been one of those really back and forth years where it starts to warm up things start to come out and then it gets pretty pretty severely cold and uh even if it doesn't get really cold that heavy frost like we had this morning that'll that'll knock a lot of things back too we didn't have too much frost this morning. We got down close to it, but um, I think we're just going to have a really pretty uh, next couple of days. So couldn't take yeah. advantage of it. Still looking at a lot of cosmetic damage. It's been interesting. This last um, one-day freeze that we had caused more mm-hmm. cosmetic damage, browning of foliage that I've seen the last uh, couple of winters when the uh, temperature was a lot rougher. Any particular groups of plants, or just pretty much across the board? It's across the board. I'm, I'm looking yeah. out right here uh, at uh, Ophiopogon, and uh, Liriope seems to be damaged the least amount. The sedges are all yellow as they can be. Viburnums yeah. are burned. The uh, even the needle palm look really wilted uh, during mm. this last one day freeze. It popped right back out. It didn't didn't hurt it at all. Yeah. Uh, bamboo bent down. We had, you know, <clears throat> we lucked out and didn't have quite as much of that sticking, uh, wet, freezing yeah. sleet that cratered all y'all's trees so badly down there. But my bamboo <clears throat> bent over pretty badly in some areas, and I figured that it had uh, been <clears throat> permanently damaged. It wasn't going to pop back up, but it all came back up. A little bit of yellow foliage yeah. uh, there too so it's kind of across the board like you said yeah and it's it's just to me remarkable the resilience uh why it's sometimes surprising we don't have more damage because uh, uh there's one place where we have cedar elm where the normal the canopy is about eight feet up uh with the ice it was bent down to within two feet of the ground and with as soon as it thawed out, it sprang right back up where it was. And uh, like I say, some of the grasses and things uh, may not go 100% back up, but the things that didn't break, uh, you really jump back up and really show no damage whatsoever. But the foliage, yeah, foliage burn on viburnums of all sorts is pretty severe. Um, and, and on uh, some of the asparagus, uh, people call them ferns, and of course they're not ferns, but some of the different varieties of asparagus have shown more damage this winter than they did back in uh, the big freeze of 2021. Yeah, even my Ming uh, fern, yeah. asparagus fern, finally browned up. It didn't brown up right after the freeze. Isn't that strange? It, yeah. Yeah, it took almost two weeks. Mm-hmm. for it to start showing the brown. I think it's going to be alive, but, man, it, it totally uh, browned out. Just delay. It was really delayed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you one other, and I blame it partly on the cold, even though it's uh, a totally different 
problem we had, and I think you had a problem with this a few years ago, we had either a raccoon or possum or more likely a combination that suddenly decided that they wanted to chew into the walls up above the roof. Uh, you know, we've got kind of the cantilevered look, well, not cantilevered, but uh, I'm not sure what you call that area, but we had just overnight suddenly three big holes chewed and we came in and there was just insulation everywhere where they had uh, gotten in there and I guess trying to get away from the cold and just pulled the lot out. And uh, the, the one thing that I, that I wanted to share about that that, uh, um, that I think is good to know, we, we called ABC, we like their chem-free division, and they came out and they've done a, a marvelous job of helping us with the problem. But I asked the guy, I said, so what do we do to be sure we're not trapping any, uh, any creatures inside and he said coyote urine. He said nothing, and you know there are two or three repellents based on that. He said nothing will run an animal out of an area if it's a coon or possum or something like that. said coyote urine, they have found that they take off at the first whiff of it. And I know you get calls, as I do, about people with those creatures in the attic or under the house or things like that. And uh, I, I thought that was interesting coming from a person who deals with this on a very regular basis. Well, that's kind of interesting because we tried it with uh, the roof rat problem we had some years mm -hmm. ago, and it didn't work at all. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess it depends on what the animal uh, is that you're dealing with. And I brought that and up. Plus, and, and Go ahead. Plus, uh, they, they can get used to the cow urine, too, if you use it on a regular basis. So people do it. Be, be careful about that. Doing it once or twice every now and then like y'all did, that's probably the best way to use it. And I asked him about the roof rats because I remembered you, you saying that. And he said they haven't really found anything that works against rats. He said uh, you're just wasting your time with coyote urine or anything else. But yeah. he said especially raccoons was what they had the best results with it. Now, interestingly, uh, what we caught the first night was a big old possum. And uh, I saw a raccoon this morning. So uh, possums can apparently be pretty damaging just like the raccoons can. But I'll keep you posted. It, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah how quickly and how much damage they did. I mean, there were two bushel baskets full of insulation on the roof and scattered around uh, just overnight. So they either they either called their friends to come help or <laughs> we had a couple of very, very vigorous uh, guys trying to get in, but uh, it, it was a surprise and not a pleasant one. I was telling Judy this morning, I go out and do my exercise program with uh, the dogs and they run around and in the morning, and they took longer to come in this morning than I've ever noticed. And Nellie, the tree climber, uh, uh -huh. took took even longer than Tater, and she was smelling uh, spots and lingering like they do when you go for a walk, you know, and they uh -huh. smell where some other dog has peed or whatever. So I don't know if uh, we probably have raccoons or possums or something coming in strolling around in the yard it's the only thing i can figure out because they were but their behavior was quite different this morning than i've noticed in a long time we we call that checking their messages based on an old far side yeah. cartoon where the one dog takes <laughs> right. off for the fire plug and says let me check my messages and uh yeah don said tater was in good voice this morning i think they're also just yep. excited about a beautiful day uh you know ours here they they were just full of energy and of course my Hannah's close to 15 now and 
little bit little bit crippled up but she was just dancing around saying what a beautiful day and like you say there was a an awful lot of sniffing going on out there yeah uh, somebody was telling me that you don't walk dogs for their exercise you walk dogs so they can get to the uh, check out all the messages out there, and you need to let them do a certain Well, Somebody it's a good. Somebody told e- me yesterday that, that I wanted to uh, bring it up, and you may need to ask uh, Doctor Kirby about it. But somebody here was told at the at their uh, vet's office that the kennel cough is really kind of epidemic levels right now. Are y'all see anything similar to that? We are. And it's not just the so-called kennel cough. It's upper respiratory, but there is just an awful lot of it. It's so contagious. Usually, most dogs, uh, Dr. Kirby says, it's not really life-threatening, but it just spreads. And uh, anytime you've got one dog in an area with it, you're probably going to have, uh, especially ones whose immune system might be a little bit compromised. Yeah, the, uh, Bordetella, they have an oral um vaccine for it and uh some of the a lot of the boarding facilities recommend it and you know some vaccines are i i think are a good idea some not so good like oh like the one for leptospirosis some of the vets promote it but it only covers four serovars out of 20 different forms of it but dan says the uh the bordetella which is one of the kennel coughs said that vaccine works pretty well and it doesn't it's not hard on the dogs at all so uh, people might might ask you read about that. Cool. One thing I was going to mention too for your people down that way that had uh, tree damage. I heard a couple of people commenting about that. I, if you had trees busted up much at all, I, they're going to be in stress yep. uh, from that, uh, at least to some degree. And I'd recommend highly doing the whole sick tree treatment. That's a great idea. Trees. That's and a you, real good. You really, in some cases, not going to be able to put you know wound dressing on all the damage when that has happened. So, the tree, the sick tree treatment, will pretty much eliminate the the worry about oak wilt. Oh, I totally agree on that. And uh, and the whole sick tree treatment is is a great program, but for people that don't have all the ingredients, uh, even just the cornmeal alone creating that systemic induced resistance. Uh, we recommend that twice a year, uh, wherever you are. But that's a real good point on tree damage. The sick tree treatment is going to go a long way just in helping the trees get beyond the shock as well as preventing some serious problems. You bet, you bet. Did, did we talk about what Ohio is doing with the calorie we, fares last week? You, you brought it up at the end of the show and said we needed to talk about it this week. That's, uh, that's on my list of things, and I, I've got a couple of other other questions uh, that listeners had asked me to ask you, but let's talk about the calorie pair and uh, what they're doing up there. Well, it's pretty interesting because it's a it's a done deal. It, it's law now. They have banned not only uh, the calorie pair. That's the one that, in my opinion, is the biggest problem. And I'm I'm guilty about recommending it in the past because it's such a so much more pretty structure than Bradford mm-hmm. and the uh, various uh, cultivars and hybrids have, but they have banned all of the ornamental pears in, in the state of Ohio, including the mother plant, uh, the, the calorie pear, mm-hmm. and it's because of uh, 
uh, birds spreading seed and, and the plants coming up all over the place. So it's going to be you, interesting to see. Yeah. Have you seen that to be a to see to be a problem in the Metroplex? Because I see none of that down here. I have never I've never seen a Bradford pear come up. I have seen calorie pear, <clears throat> and um, back in the well, back when I was you know still doing the plants in the Metroplex and updating it every, every few years, I, I saw one stand uh, out in the country where there was a whole bunch of them coming up in an area mm. where there were a couple of big trees. But seeing it pop up in intersections and, uh, you know, just all over the place, like I am seeing Chinese pistachios. <laughs> I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. It's coming up all over the place. It's amazing. Yep. It really is a problem. Well, that and uh, uh, our area. Just, just females. Yeah. yeah, hackberries. Hackberries are the other that are just, you know, and what are you going to do about it? But the pistache is something that was planted on the recommendation of the Extension Service so widely. <laughs> it's kind of like the weathermen. They don't ever apologize, but that was, in my opinion, that was one of the biggest mistakes made. And this business of offering things that are supposedly bale trees only, as we've talked about the ginkgo, Trees seem to have that ability to change every now and then. So uh, if we're going to pick, if we're going to pick on calorie pears, there are a few others we ought to be picking on as well. But uh, I, I don't see banning a whole group of plants like that. I, I think it's kind of foolish, and I wonder who's behind because you know the legislatures are responding to pressure from somebody. But uh, I kind of wonder who it is because environmentally, I don't, I don't see that as the real serious issue. Well, it's a done deal. It's on the books, and so it's going to be interesting to see if other people uh, follow suit. But I'm kind of like you. I don't see the uh, – and I wonder if Bradford Pear uh, and Aristocrat and all the others that have been yep. thrown into this bad bucket even have viable seed in the fruit. And I uh, question that, too, because I, I like you, because there have been a lot of Bradford Pears planted around about 10 or 12 years ago, and many of them are self-destructing now, but I, I can't say even once yeah. that I've ever seen a seedling uh, come up under or around them. No, no, I haven't either. I think it probably all is about the calorie pair, and they just uh -huh. threw all the hybrids in there, you know, because it happened to be nearby. But, you know, I don't recommend Bradford pears, but it's more for because of the branching structure that they have. Yeah. And Absolutely. if you keep them wet in the ground or if they're planted too deep in the ground, they're very susceptible to quite a few diseases, um, you know, fire blight included. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't recommend it. It works as a temporary tree real well, you know, for yep. white flowers and red fall color, but not for long term. But they're all planted too deep, just like the grape myrtles are, and that just aggravates mm -hmm. the problem. So, yeah, I, they're... They're not on not on my recommended list, but I, I find it interesting when our governmental entities start getting into this sort of thing. The, the other thing that I object to down here is we've actually had some some municipalities and some also some HOAs, which are also a whole other story. Uh, but they've tried banning St. Augustine grass because they say, oh, it just uses so much water. And I say, don't ban it. You can limit the amount. You can say no more than 5% of your landscape should be in grass of any sort. But to ban a 
specific type of plant like that. It's just, uh, you, you kind of want to say, did you really think this through before you did it? <laughs> and so the calorie pairs for me are just the latest in a long line of head-scratching uh, legislation. So it's it's interesting, it, very interesting. Related to that, back when I did the uh, one of the last books that I've done, I guess it was the next to the last one I did, called Organic Lawn Care, the uh, the publisher, UT Press, mm -hmm. came to me after, you know, it was signed and I was almost finished with the book and, and moving right along. They came to me and said that they had some heartburn over the fact that, that they were about to publish my book that was recommending turf grass. And I was like, oh, brother. Um, they said, is there any way we can at least add a chapter or do something about the alternatives that you can do? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. In fact, that's probably a good idea. So I added a chapter about putting vegetable gardens and and ground covers and some alternative kind of things to lawn care. But, yeah, it, uh, it was kind of a woke uh, reaction to... Uh, just recommending turf in general that they had there for a while. And uh, luckily they accepted what I added to the book and it, it was published. And it is a good book. It's it's on my shelf and it's, I reference it on a fairly regular basis. But to uh, to which I say, so we're, what are we going to do uh, about golf courses and public parks and all those other places that uh, – Make good good use of turf grass, but ah, don't don't get me started on government regulation. <laughs> that, that'd be a conversation that would probably get us both in big trouble. But uh, it, it just is is really surprising um, when people try to legislate things that they really have no knowledge of. And I guess I guess <laughs> that's about as much as I better say on it, at least, because uh, I I have that same conversation with uh, public officials every now and then, and I. I have trouble keeping my comments always completely civil when some of the some of the ideas are just you know way 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 out there. But uh, one thing I wanted to be sure to, to ask you that somebody had asked me last week, and uh, but we were talking about planting by the moon signs, and uh, I know that uh, that you are a, a big believer in that. And but they said when we're starting seeds indoors uh, for transplants. Uh, do you do you still look at the moon signs? And I, my response was, I guess so, but nobody's ever asked me that question. And uh, so I said, I'll ask Howard. So what's your response if, if somebody was starting their transplants for the vegetable garden inside and said, should they still try to follow the moon planting? Uh, I think so, because I think it affects the pressure, the moisture in the, in the sea is what it's doing, just like you uh -huh. know, it affects the tides. Right, and it affects bleeding. You know, when you're thinking about dehorning animals or castration or something like like that. But uh, you, I tell people this all the time. It's a real thing, and you can it'll make you a believer in a hurry. Get your hair cut mm -hmm. at at the waxing of the moon, and then the next time you get your hair cut, do it during the waning of the moon, the <laughs> decreasing, and you will see a big difference in how soon you need to have have a haircut again. And which moon phase is the one that uh, extends the period of time between haircuts? The waning, just like the, the same thing. In other words, the decreasing light of the moon. And that's also the time when you want to kill things. 
Mm-hmm. If you want to kill weeds, if you want to kill a plant, you know, drill holes and kill the stump and keep it from coming back. If you want to do anything where you're you're trying to stop the growth of stuff, you do that during the. Uh, this is a gross generalization, but yeah, you yeah. basically do those things during the decreasing light of the moon or the dark of the moon, even. And then the increasing light, the wa- the uh, waxing is where you're going to plant the seed. And I'd say in the greenhouse or in the ground, either one. Yeah, well, I, that makes sense. And uh, it's funny, I brought up the tides, too, because if that gravitational pull of the moon is enough to affect the tides the way it does, you know it has to, it has that's to affect. That's power. Yeah, yeah, that's some power. I learned a new word this week. It's totally... Totally beside the subject, but uh, in in looking and, and reading about the moon and moon signs and uh, waxing and waning, you know what the term for what we call the moon when it is between half full and full, you know what word we use to describe that moon? I don't. It's a gibbous moon. And uh, I'd heard that word before, but I didn't, I didn't know what it meant. It said we were in a waxing gibbous moon. Or was it a waning gibbous moon? Anyway, it meant a decreasing moon, but it hadn't reached the halfway point yet. So there's your new word for the week, the gibbous moon. G-I-B-U-S? I don't know. I don't know. Roberta was the one reading it to me because so, <laughs> I was driving, and so I didn't look at it. But uh, I just Check thought that, yeah, one fun new word. Are you still playing with Wordle? Was that something you found to be a, a, an enjoyable challenge for yourself? Yeah, Logan does it too. We kind of did some together last last time she was uh, here. I'm she's really good. She's got a she has gone on forever without missing one. I, <laughs> I miss them all the time because I get I get I'm too antsy. I get tired of it. I just stick something in there to try to get get it done. So I I kind of mess up my string from. Oh, well, I'll I'll look forward to but talking to game. her next. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I, what I find, uh, and if anybody you know hasn't found this, this is just a little free thing you can do on the phone. It comes from New York Times, but it's a, it's it's a little. You get six chances to, in effect, guess a five-letter word, and everybody have to go figure it out for themselves. Beyond that, but uh, I find that I look at it first thing in the morning, and if nothing just pops into my head, I'll lay it down and pick it up later. And my brain must think it's fun because it works on it. And many times uh, something will be obvious to me that I just simply could not see early in the morning. So uh, uh, you can tell, Logan, my my streak was snapped a couple of weeks ago. I, I got 104 in a row before I uh, missed one. So <laughs> it's I'm not obsessed with it, but I do I do enjoy it. Uh, it's just a, a fun little mind game. Well, I haven't gotten close to that kind of stream because I just don't have the patience. <laughs> what do you start out with? I start out with the word ado a lot in uh, Adobe a lot. I thought, well, use a word that has as many uh, vowels in it as possible, but I'm not sure that's the best thing. I think they may trick you with that that thought process. Well, I, I do. Now, that is a that would be a really good one. I use audio, A-U-D-I-O, is yeah, where I usually start. But uh, but then my second word, if I don't get a good you know suggestion from that first one, I'll I'll try to get something that has an e in it or maybe a, even an e and a y. But uh, a do would be a real interesting one because that gets uh, a e i 
and you. You missed the O there. But anyway, I'll have to give that a try. But uh, audio is one, and I think I read somewhere that that was Bill Gates' favorite was audio. So anyway, just oh, anybody who doesn't know what, yeah, what we're talking about, check out Wordle. It's kind of fun, and it's free. <laughs> well, what else is yeah, going on? What what else is on your list of things? Uh, of course, fertilizing is I just dwell on that constantly, but... Uh, um, what anything else in particular that you're suggesting to your many listeners? Well, I visited with uh, some landscape contractors, some that I'm kind of consulting with, and some uh, just friends about the timing. And it was interesting. Some of the people into organics have kind of gotten away from fertilizing really early in the spring. And I reminded them that you know it's a good benefit for your business and and horticulturally as well, if you can get that mm-hmm. fertilizer out as early as possible. So we start talking about it in January, and then February we push it really big. If you wait till right. April or May, and like the people with synthetic fertilizers do and plants start growing, I think you really miss, miss the boat. It's okay because you can fertilize with organics any month of the year, yep. but you really get some benefit out of doing the uh, – uh, first major fertilization of the year, early, early in the year. February is perfect. Well, when people ask me why, and I think it's accurate, what I tell them is that um, basically the microbes need to process a lot of the things that are in the organic fertilizer. It's kind of like digesting it. When you when you eat a meal, you don't get the benefit immediately. Your digestive system has to act upon it to make the nutrients available through your body. And I tell people plants are the same way. Your soil microbes, which are the main thing we're trying to promote, they have to get that fertilizer ready for the plants to absorb and use. And if you wait until the growth starts, you're behind the curve. And uh, that usually resonates with most people and, <laughs> and gets them to buy a bag of fertilizer. But, yeah, it's just a different timing. When I <laughs> was trying to convert Dallas to the uh, organic program, that was the one thing that I think I made the most headway on telling the retail stores and the contractors, too, that, you know, you can start fertilizing early in the year during a period of time where a lot of times you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs waiting for the heat, you know, the weather to warm up. So it just gives you, from a, a business standpoint, an advantage, but luckily it's the horticultural thing to do as well, just like you said. Well, then it's plus the fact you can put it on wet grass or shrubs or anything yeah. else. You put synthetic fertilizers on a wet plant where it sticks to the leaves, you're going to have problems. But organics, you know, it's what I tell people, 365 days a year, hot, cold, wet, dry, it makes no difference, but it does no good while it stays in the bag. <laughs> That's true. Well, very well, good, sir. Yeah, you already mentioned it, too, but it is the window right now for the uh, corn gluten meal, if you want to give right. that a shot. It's uh, dicey sometimes, but sometimes it works beautifully. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also still in within the window to spray the vinegar, the strong vinegar, across the entire turf and kill the weeds, the rescue grass being the number one villain there that people ask me about. Oh, and we get henbit. We get uh, rescue grasses, number one, but, boy, the henbit and the dandelions will be along pretty soon. And uh, if the weather warms up, and we're looking at chilly days here for the next week or so, but it's not going to take much weather, much warm weather to uh, 
get our turf grasses coming back out. So that orange oil vinegar is uh, is a very important thing to get done. And uh, the other thing that surprises people, but I tell them about the pre-emergence, uh, uh, that it doesn't kill the seed. It it keeps it from forming a root system is how it's so effective. And um, so if you wait until you see the little plants, <laughs> you're, you're kind of beyond the time, and you can't put it on too early or you're not going to get that kind of benefit because your soil microbes are going to digest it just like they do the, you know, fertilizer products. And that's the other thing about corn gluten is even if they don't work uh, as, you know, as a pre-emergent, you're getting, what, 9% nitrogen, I think, or something like that. So it's got a good Probably fertilizer. Probably higher than that in most bags, yeah. Because yeah. people don't want to have the stop sale on their products, so they make the uh, guaranteed analysis a little bit lower. <laughs> uh, the other thing on killing stuff with vinegar is uh, we're kind of seeing that the molasses added to it might help even more than orange oil. It would be good to do kind of side-by-side tests, which we'll try to do. But the uh, the more thorough killing of, of suckers from the bases of trees and things like that with the 20% vinegar, the, the molasses really seems to be... Um, a powerful addition to it, and we we recommend both. I I think that I think the solvent action of the orange oil to kind of soften up uh, the things that have a waxy cuticle. I think that's one way that that helps. I, I always try to figure out why, just like Dr. Kirby talks about. We don't treat symptoms; we have to look for the cause. And I always like to tr- figure out why. And I I I don't have an answer on the molasses yet, but. Uh, you know, orange oil is such a good solvent, and that's what makes it such a good cleaner. But I think it, it breaks down that waxy cuticle on some things, and that's what allows the, uh, the vinegar to kill such so much more quickly and thoroughly. But uh, anyway, as always, we sure enjoy having a little bit of your Saturday morning with us. Well, it's always fun. Tater's bugging me for breakfast here, so it must be time <laughs> to go. But we'll try to do this again. And you tell all the ladies in your life a very, very happy Valentine's Day from us here in South Texas. Same to your folks down there, and we'll see you next week. Look forward to it, Howard. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. Uh-huh. Goodbye. All right, Don, well, I guess we better get a break in here, and we'll try to take a few more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Well, we talked a little longer with Howard this morning, so we need to move right along here. It's going to be Judith and Mark and Evelyn. Judith is first. Good morning, Judith. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Hey, so just a side note. I start with the word roast, and that gets me off to a good start, so try that next time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Anyways, uh, my question was, what is the best practices for starting with seed indoors? I know before in the past, and I might have heard it out of context, I heard soaking seed in juice before you start planting them, but what is your best practices for starting your garden from seed? Well, it's number one is knowing what to start from seed, and tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, those are the three that do best for summer vegetables. Those are the three that do best as transplants. I think is a waste of time with fast-growing things like cucumbers and squash and beans, and they don't nearly transplant nearly as well. So those are my big three. In the cold months, it's broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, uh, that group of things that do better as transplants that do 
than direct seeding does. But uh, <clears throat> my practice is pretty much with all seeds. Yes, I like uh, a dilute Garrett juice, a brief soak. I tried it, you know, for a longer soak on some bigger, harder seeds like uh, beans, and I thought it, you know, it. it didn't it in fact it, it was counterproductive the beans kind of fell apart so a brief soak on things like that and on very small seeds what you can do is put the seeds on a piece of parchment I guess wax paper would work but I usually use parchment because I can see the seed better against a white background and then I'll take my little mist bottle and then just mist over them with that dilute Garrett juice solution and that seems I think it's the apple cider vinegar in there is the active thing but that really, I don't know about speed of germination, but I've always felt like that gave me a higher percentage of germination, and the little seedlings seemed to get off to a good start. Now, the single most important thing for starting inside is intensely bright light, so you get good compact seedlings. Also, air movement is important, so you don't get... Uh, uh, it just seems to make a stronger plant, and it really retards fungal disease, so... Uh, strong light, um, you know, I, I water usually with a little mist nozzle because I'm usually starting them in the greenhouse rather than in the house. Inside, you can use a little spray bottle for watering, but uh, just to keep from disrupting the soil, I use something called a, a fogget nozzle on the end of the hose, and it makes very, very fine droplets, and that's that's how I start seeds. Okay, okay, perfect. And then um, my other question is, uh, so we're prepping our, our garden area, and I heard about the orange oil and vinegar for the, the weed problem because we got this, right. like, little green stuff coming up. Mm -hmm. Is is that going to be safe to put down and then, you know, probably a, a month from now actually put the plants in the ground, uh, especially can, with you the can put the You can put the plants in the ground an hour later. It leaves no residue oh. in the soil, and you're just coating the foliage on the weeds. So, uh there's no residue problem whatsoever with it. Just remember, it kills green vegetation, and that's why we can use it in the grass, because the grass is brown right now. Once the grass greens up, you know, we can't be doing that. But just to go out in your garden area and spray uh, with orange oil and vinegar, no. it's Once it's dry, it's harmless. Okay, okay. And then um, my husband is uh, getting a... Um, uh, not a backhoe, but I'm going to butcher the name. It's basically something to, to move a lot of fill in our yard. And, uh -huh. I, and I told him, hey, can you just scrape the top layer of the, of the garden very lightly to get uh -huh. some of that uh, stuff off? But I couldn't remember. Was it that that you discouraged or was it plowing that you discouraged that would bring up a lot of weed? It's, it's things that actually disrupt the soil, and once again, it's important to understand why. Uh, weed seeds that are buried many times cannot sprout. A lot of different kinds of weeds, unless they get sunlight, don't sprout. When we till the soil, we bring up buried seeds that may have been sitting there for 20 years, and we get them up on top and give them an opportunity to sprout. So uh, doing a very Thin. I just hate to see us waste any soil at all, but uh, no, it's, it's the tillage of the soil that tends to increase weed problems. Scraping the top, not a big deal, but don't be throwing that soil away. Pile it somewhere, uh, maybe solarize it to get rid of the weeds, but don't let anybody haul that soil off. It's too hard to come by. Yeah, no, we're putting it in the chicken coop. Um, Good. So I, I oh, that's a great. Sure that we were doing it correctly. You are. Well, thank you so much. I know other people have questions, so I'll ask my next question tomorrow, but you have a great day. Thank you, Bob. Thank you.
Thank you, Judith. You do the same. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, we've got about four minutes left, and we've got Mark and Evelyn, so let's see if we can get you both in. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Bob. I morning. have a yard that's about, a uh, front yard, about one-fourth of an acre. It's about 60% weed. Some areas it's just 100% covered. I can't, it's a Bermuda grass. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't know what, what's your recommendations as far as replacing it, uh, reseeding it, cutting it back, or... What are your recommendations to get it back what, to normal? What is your ultimate aim? What kind of grass do you would you like to have that area filled with? Uh, Bermuda and, and not weeds. It's all weeds. Okay, I wish it was okay. Just Bermuda, but it's all weeds. Yeah, um, it, all you need to do is fertilize and water. Uh, the, your Bermuda is not really going to resume growth until the weather warms up. Right now, any of those weeds that are green, go ahead and spray with that vinegar and orange oil mix. A gallon of strong vinegar, uh, two ounces of orange oil, a little bit of uh, molasses, maybe a little bit of dish soap. You can spray that, and it will kill everything green, but it won't hurt your Bermuda at all. Uh, Bermuda loves fertilizer, and once it starts to green up, you could fertilize it once a month if you wanted to, and as long as you have the water... Um, to water. And now, you know, of course, organic fertilizers don't burn, so you're not rushing to water right after you put it down. But uh, Bermuda will choke out, you know, all those weeds. Uh, Given plenty of nutrient, plenty of water, your lawnmower is all you need. There's no, none of the expensive reseeding or anything like that. I would kill what you can now to reduce the seeds that it might be producing. But beyond that, no, don't don't let anybody talk you into throwing your money away. Spend your money on fertilizer more frequently, and by this time next year, you should have a hundred percent Bermuda lawn. Well, th- I looked. It's been like that for a couple of years, and I dug up some of the stuff. There's no Bermuda underneath the weeds in some areas. Okay. Well, in that case, you can add some more Bermuda seed, but don't do it until May. Bermuda will not okay. sprout until the weather's really hot. Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit before then. But hey, appreciate the call. Let me get Evelyn in here for the last minute and a half. Good morning, Evelyn. Good morning. Uh, I have problems with spider mites on my tomatoes every year. Can you mm-hmm. tell me what I can do ahead of time? Or yes, yes, abs- absolutely. From the day you plant your tomatoes, every week. Spray them with liquid seaweed. Uh, the dilution is two tablespoons per gallon. I actually use two tablespoons of liquid seaweed and one tablespoon of molasses. And if you'll use that as a foliar spray on your tomatoes, spider mites will not be a problem. Uh, the spray doesn't kill the spider mites, but what it does is toughen the cells of the tomato plant leaves to where spider mites simply can't get after them. So, uh, yeah, two tablespoons of uh, liquid seaweed, one tablespoon of molasses to a gallon of water, and you'll never overdo it. I I usually tell people two weeks, but if you've had a severe problem, I would do it once a week, uh, but it's it's not anything you're ever going to burn with. You can do it as often as you like, but uh, uh, that will stop spider mites on palms, on tomatoes, on beans. Um, when we get into the hot summer on beans and snow peas, some of them are just going to get it no matter what. But that's your best preventive measure right there. Well, it's the tomatoes that I always have a problem with, and it seems like every year is getting worse and worse. And my garden is right by a, a alley, and, of course, there's weeds there, so that's probably not helping any either. Well, get yourself a bottle of liquid seaweed, use it on a regular basis, and the spider mites will be an absolute minimal problem to you. Okay, once a week, then. Yes, ma'am. Plant them. Okay, yeah. thank you very much, and have a good day. 
You do the same, and I thank you. Everybody else, stick around for Martin Bamba. He's up next. We'll do plants again tomorrow. Be any date. This is KTSA Radio.